0: This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Part six of Beyond Good and Evil is entitled, We Scholars. And Nietzsche is specifically talking here of the academic. He doesn't mean the intellectual in the broad sense, and he certainly doesn't mean a philosopher. And to draw that out, just briefly before we get into the aphorisms, I want to reconsider part one of the work, Prejudices of Philosophers, where Nietzsche is speaking of what we would call the great philosophers, people like Spinoza, Plato, and so on, who are the only people that Nietzsche thinks actually have a right to the title of philosopher at all. The, the philosophy professor is not a philosopher to Nietzsche. He is a scholar. He's an academic. He's not a philosopher in the sense that Nietzsche understands the term, and the contrast between these two figures is drawn out more thoroughly in this part, which is interesting because this whole section is in many ways a criticism, an attack on the scholar, on the academics, and yet you could also look in part one as an attack on the philosophers, the way Nietzsche understands them, and yet here in part six, the philosopher is contrasted actually rather favorably in comparison to the scholar, right? The scholar looks, uh, you know, rather a poor and shabby figure of modernity compared to the philosopher as Nietzsche presents him in part six as the commander and self-legislator. In fact, I think that's the, in this part, the first time Nietzsche uses those terms to describe the philosopher. And if we think about the great philosophers that Nietzsche brings up, especially in that, uh, this first uh, chapter of Beyond Good and Evil, they are people who are epoch setting, They are epoch-creating. They don't think within the existing paradigm. They create a completely new paradigm. Now, what is the nature of Nietzsche's criticism of the philosopher in that first part? His criticism is, in so many words, that the way the philosopher operates is more akin to the artist or the mystic than, say, the academics have liked to think that the philosopher is not pulling his ideas out of the ether, from the lap of being, from the thing in itself, from this conceptual intelligible world. That whole world Nietzsche has called into question as being like a surface superficial world, conscious gloss upon reality. I'm, uh, you know, using many of these uh, terms and phrases sort of repeatedly over these has 10 episodes to talk about beyond good and evil, but I think it's important to sort of define the territory and remind us of where we are. But the nature of Nietzsche's criticism of the philosopher is of this kind: that the philosopher is not a font of logic, or at least not a font of dispassionate, disinterested logic, that in fact no such thing exists for all of the reasons that we've gone through. That Nietzsche comes to by centering our, our focus on physiology, understanding ourselves as living beings, and philosophy, psychology, as manifestations of who we are as embodied living beings, and that the great philosopher, epoch setting though he may be, paradigm breaker and epoch creator that he is, is still we we look to him as an extraordinary figure with an extraordinary instincts, with a certain tyrannical impulse or a certain ruling thought, right? That, uh, you know, one of his drives was so strong and uh, so powerful, so articulate in its aims that it was able to author this entire reinterpretation of the world through its own lens. That's who the philosopher is. And that is a criticism in terms of It's an attack on our normal understanding of the will to truth and the human pursuit of knowledge. But now turning to the scholar with that understanding, right, of who the philosopher actually is, no more illusions about the philosopher as pulling ideas from the lap of being, uh, the scholar and the philosopher can both be understood in this fashion as an instinctual embodied living being. But the philosopher looks favorable to us in this light because in this world of intellectual pursuits the philosopher then uh with this reevaluation that nietzsche's affected of you know sort of what the pursuit of knowledge is and what morality is are which is to say our entire you might say science of creating valuations with this new understanding The philosopher stands in the same relationship to the academic as the exceptional person in history stands in regard to the collective. That Nietzsche's, for all his criticism of our understanding of who the philosopher was and what he was doing, we can still see how Nietzsche sees such a figure as being akin to that kind of mutation, the thing that drives the species forward the person who is set against his own age and the dogmatism of his own age. And perhaps, I mean, he inevitably creates a new dogmatism because he's working out of his own tyrannical instincts, but they're singular and individual and cut against the grain in some way. And Nietzsche's entire project, in some sense, is to stand for the value of that, the exception against the collective. So I just wanted to lay out the territory there because... It may seem as though at the beginning Nietzsche is attacking philosophy and perhaps he is attacking quote unquote philosophy understood as an academic discipline. Nietzsche is more interested in philosophers however and even though he's reevaluated what they are he holds them up as a ideal in comparison to the academic person who as we'll see uh, throughout this entire chapter is regarded as sort of a disciple or avatar uh, or a a zealot for science, but science as understood as severed from philosophy. And we're going to get into what the implications of that really are. And remember that it's right uh, around this time, the same year, when Nietzsche writes his new preface to Birth of Tragedy, his reevaluation of his earlier work, where he says, you know, with my attack on Socrates in this... uh, you know, book on dramatic tragedy in ancient Greece, really what I was doing was bringing to the forefront a problem that no one else had seen, which was the problem of science. And that will be central to this entire division of the text as well. And so I said I was going to be brief with this introduction, but um, I, or at least I intended to. I don't know if I said it, but I don't know if I succeeded there. Nevertheless, uh, let's get going with uh, 204. Quote, At the risk that moralizing will, here too, turn out to be what it has always been, namely, according to Balzac, an intrepid showing of one's wounds, I venture to speak out against an unseemly and harmful shift in the respective ranks of science and philosophy, which is now threatening to become established, quite unnoticed, and as if it were accompanied by a perfectly good conscience. I am of the opinion that only experience, experience always seems to mean bad experience, can entitle us to participate in the discussion of such higher questions of rank, lest we talk like blind men about colors, against science, the way women and artists do. Oh, this dreadful science, sigh their instinct in embarrassment. It always gets to the bottom of things. End quote. So we see in the very beginning here, a recapitulation to Nietzsche's project of being beyond good and evil. Um, and the implication at the end is that through experience through the complexity of life we will not come to these simple-minded affirmations of negations of just speaking out against science right uh the way that he says women and artists do so people who are uh more concerned about their feelings or their interpretations of reality than whatever a truly hard-nosed skeptical um attempt to apprehend the nature of reality might bring them. Uh, There's a passage in human all to human where Nietzsche says that, uh, you know, the artist has a lower morality than the thinker because at bottom, they do not want their beautiful, mystical interpretations of reality to be taken from them. And so that's, I think, the meaning of this line that there's the instinct of certain people to be sort of um, constitutionally opposed to the sort of scientific mindset, we'll say, because they feel like it's sort of like this cold, dead approach to life and they have all these sort of fanciful, whimsical ideas that they would prefer to have and that it's simply as simple as that. That's their instinct. And that Nietzsche is not trying to bring us into that sort of viewpoint. You might say that's almost like a romantic viewpoint. And uh, Nietzsche has a complicated relationship with romanticism, but in many ways he's um, he's a critic of romanticism as just as much as a critic of like enlightenment thinking. And, but the interesting thing about this first paragraph, right, that, so first of all, he says, there's the risk that moralizing here, too, will turn Nietzsche's work into what moralizing always is, a showing of one's wounds. So, Nietzsche is reminding us, he's taking off the mask once again and saying, this is my involuntary unconscious uh, autobiography or memoir. I guess he's doing it consciously, right, because he's actually (laughs) bringing his conscious awareness into you know, that question, but nevertheless, he understands that the the drives, the impulses of his thought, the way that his thought is pushed into definite channels by his instincts, those do have an unconscious origin. And that here, even though he's thinking things out consciously, at bottom, it's simply his own tyrannical moral impulses that are guiding what he's, he's writing. So Nietzsche's warning us about this at the beginning. He's very consistent with what his project is in Beyond Good and Evil. More importantly, though, the unseemly and harmful shift in the respective ranks of science and philosophy. So the ranking of science above philosophy. And ironically, and I'm not sure how aware of this Nietzsche was, Nietzsche is of a, of a kind with Kant here and many other philosophers that he'll go on to disparage in this very passage. But Kant was very concerned in his own day with uh, philosophy being considered sort of the highest discipline, the orienting discipline of the German university system. Now, the very fact that Kant is concerned with sort of the classes and categories of the various disciplines within the university system, it shows maybe a difference in, in the approach or the mindset of Nietzsche and Kant and why Nietzsche will attack Kant. But this is a problem that I've also heard expressed by, you know, the Aristotelian type conservatives at the Chicago School, uh, you know, Alan Bloom and all those people that um, this misunderstanding of the rank of science and philosophy. And uh, to really get into what that means, we'll just go further into the passage. Quote, the scholar's declaration of independence, his emancipation from philosophy is one of the more refined effects of the democratic order and disorder. The self-glorification and self-exaltation of scholars now stands in full bloom. In their finest spring everywhere which is not meant to imply that in this case self-praise smells pleasant freedom from all masters that is what the instinct of the rabble wants in this case too and after science has most happily rid itself of theology whose handmaid it was too long and now aims with an excess of high spirits and a lack of understanding to lay down laws for philosophy and play the master herself what am i saying the philosopher end quote so Philosophy was freed from theology, or sorry, science was freed from theology uh, as its handmaiden. And this was the case for much of the Catholic Church and the way that they, um, the education system of medieval Europe and even into the Renaissance, Uh, you know, this was a time when if you wanted to learn the best science around, you went to the church, but that meant that the scientific knowledge that you were pursuing was understood within the set of valuations, metaphysical and moral assertions of the church, that was sort of the framework within which scientific inquiry could take place, which means there are certain conclusions that you are starting from in your scientific investigation. And that is the in a sense, like the eternal enemy of science, right? The way Nietzsche understands it and the way he understands it in the figure of Socrates. Socrates takes a knife to all of our foregone conclusions and, um, you know, he goes after them. Like, you know, he says he was like the best swordsman in terms of dialectic, in terms of debate in all of Athens. And he does this by going after all of the uh, already accepted foregone conclusions of the Athenian nobility. And so, to Nietzsche, that Socrates is the herald of the scientific spirit. And this is what the nature of science always does. This is its internal logic, that it will always take that rational, skeptical knife to all of those conclusions. And so, of course, naturally over time, it will shed itself of theology. But philosophy, this third thing, what is that? Well, philosophy, if we understand the philosopher as this individual commander and legislator, this epoch setter, this person who can change up the paradigm that's very similar to like the artist or the mystic. I mean, what role does the artist play in society or the mystic? You know, we often say in modern times, the artist comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comforted. The artist, when unbounded from any religious framework for their thought or artistic expression, can introduce ideas and feelings into society that could have all sorts of profound Uh, transformative effects, right? And that's the aspect of the mystic as well as compared to, say, the dogmatist of the existing orthodoxy, uh, you know, in comparison to the person who actually has the direct mystical experience and says, I've received wisdom from God. The philosopher is like the mystic and the artist. They're all transformative figures. They're mutation figures, right? Mutative figures. I'm not sure if that's a word. And so... Theology was sort of like the rigid, dead ossification of past mystical experience, right? And science wished to free itself from that, which within its own internal logic makes perfect sense. But then it turns its eye to philosophy, to the living dynamic process by which we get new valuations, new feelings about life, new mindsets about life. New worldviews, new perspectives. This is how these tyrannical, how the perspective of one tyrannical impulse within an individual can come to dominate, but then um, take hold within the minds and hearts of others. And this is a very dangerous thing. Socrates considered it a very dangerous thing with regard to to uh, art, right? Not not with philosophy, because Socrates comes from a time, of course, when philosophy and natural philosophy, or their term for the sciences back then, are all one thing and so socrates is in some way uh, better integrated than the modern scholar. So Nietzsche would never compare socrates to the modern scholar, right? Um i i'm not i'm not meaning to imply that. I am implying that the scientific spirit of socrates in some sense created the modern scholar that 2000 years later or 2500 years later they are socrates's true epigoni um his descendants. And finally there's the element here freedom from all masters, which we detailed that out in the last uh, episode. So you can go back there if you want a review of that, where Nietzsche sort of sees a parallel to the democratic spirit and what it does to morality or to culture here in the intellectual realm. And that this is what is at at the bottom of this uh, attack on the Existing valuation of philosophy as standing higher than science or science is the handmaiden of philosophy in some sense So we'll move on with this passage quote my memory the memory of a scientific man if you'll forgive me is Bulging with naivetes of overbearing that I have heard about philosophy and philosophers from the lips of young natural Scientists and old physicians not to speak of the most learned and conceited of all scholars the philologists and schoolmen who are both by profession. Sometimes it was the specialist and nook-dweller who instinctively resisted any kind of synthetic enterprise and talent. Sometimes the industrious worker who'd got a whiff of odium and the noble riches in the psychic economy of the philosopher, which had made him feel defensive and small. Sometimes it was that colorblindness of the utility man who sees nothing in philosophy but a series of refuted systems and a prodigal effort that does nobody any good. Sometimes the fear of masked mysticism and a correction of the limits of knowledge leaped forward. Sometimes lack of respect for individual philosophers that had involuntarily generalized itself into a lack of respect for philosophy. Most frequently, finally, I found among young scholars that what lay behind the arrogant contempt for a philosophy was the bad after effect of a philosopher to whom they now denied allegiance in the whole without, however, having broken the spell of his cutting evaluation of other philosophers. With the result of an overall irritation with all philosophy schopenhauer's aftereffect in our most modern germany for example seems to me to be of this kind with his unintelligent wrath against hegel he has succeeded in wrenching the whole last generation of germans out of the context of german culture a culture that was considering everything in an elevation and divinatory subtlety of the historical sense but precisely at this point schopenhauer was poor unreceptive and un-german to the point of genius end quote. And so Nietzsche goes over several things that could predispose the scientific man against the philosopher. And he's sort of trying to encapsulate like, what is the spirit of our age now where we have these people who are, we might say, taken with scientism and who talk disparagingly about philosophers? Where is that coming from? And he gives us several, I think, very plausible explanations insofar as I see these around today. And I think we all do right? The, especially like the fear of masked mysticism and a correction of the limits of knowledge, right? That's behind people like Stephen Hawking, when he wrote, wrote that book that had that infamous section where he like kind of trashes on philosophy. Is like, oh, it's useless now because now we have science. And, uh, you know, knowledge is what we glean by experiment. And people who just think they can have knowledge without doing experiments are, you know, somehow, you know, misinformed, wayward, confused, that is a, uh, it's a weak point in into which mysticism and irrationality could come into our uh, worldview if we let it. So we have to be, there's like a, a sense among the modern scientific person, the person who's really committed to this worldview, that nothing short of positivism, in so many words, is required in order to keep Cleanly, keep out all that bad, irrational stuff. The superstitions that people used to believe, we don't believe that anymore. Now, Nietzsche thinks that that's ridiculous. If if anything, positivism is a superstition because <laughs> the this has been said many times, it's not my original thought, but the proposition that all propositions which are valid must be proved by experiment has never itself been proved by experiment. And this is the kind of... Uh, contradiction that lies at the the heart of the scientific uh worldview and again i think we see many of this today again the the color blindness of the utility man who sees nothing in philosophy but a series of uh refuted systems an effort that does nobody any good right the person who does philosophy out of uh, i mean i guess the best person to stand as a representative of this is Karl Marx, right? We're not just, uh, you know, the person who looks at philosophy is just talking about history or interpreting it when the point is to change it. And that this is what is what is behind this drive towards um, scientific approach to life. And in fact, Marxism is, uh, I think, scientific materialism, right? It's how uh, One of the names for that sort of view of history. More interesting here, I think, is... When he speaks about Schopenhauer's unintelligent wrath against Hegel. And it's funny because, you know, a surface reading might be that even though Nietzsche rejects many aspects of Schopenhauer, he definitely stands on the side of Schopenhauer against Hegel, insofar as, especially if you read Deleuze uh, and if you look at many of Nietzsche's notes where he mentions Hegel, there is, in his published work, a kind of unspoken, silent hostility against Hegel, you might say, against this entire dialectic idea of history that history is driven forward by a spirit um, that is to say mind that uh, ideas and self-realization is what uh, history is driving towards and there's a goal within the process of history that is revealed through these negations that every individual thing exists in a dialectical relationship to something else in other words that is to say uh, you it's by negating that we sort of derive an identity, which makes identity relational. For Nietzsche, identity is not relational. It's based on difference. Again, I might be bringing in maybe too much of Deleuze here if you haven't read that, but we'll get into that next season. But uh, that difference in Nietzsche's sense is not a dialectic. It's, it's the affirmation of something unique and uh, peculiar, we might say, its own individual pattern of force that's not actually defined by its relation to something else, and so you know Nietzsche very clearly takes many things from Schopenhauer, and he definitely seems more of a temperamental uh sort of of a kinship with schopenhauer in that in that uh, way, and very much against the approach of Hegel to philosophy, and he's going to attack Hegel later in this uh this chapter. But uh, Nietzsche here criticizes Schopenhauer for his unintelligent wrath against Hegel because Schopenhauer was clearly resentful of Hegel. He was clearly hated Hegel's success in comparison to his own relative obscurity during, uh, you know, he became a little bit more famous when he was older, but um, sort of like a cult figure, we might might say, right? Schopenhauer was never, you know, during his lifetime, never approximated the uh, huge impact that Hegel had and he always resented him for it. And, you know, Nietzsche is saying that very often what happens is that young people, they they maybe get a whiff of philosophy, they read some philosophers. And what do all philosophers say and do? Because ultimately they're not dispassionate logicians. What they all are articulating is the tyrannical impulse within them that's trying to reshape the world, reshape the intellectual world in accord with their own The reality of their own instincts. And so, of course, what all philosophers end up doing is uh, hating on each other, right? Uh, It's a war. It's a war of one drive versus another, just as takes place on the microcosmic scale within the individual and within the macrocosmic scale within society in in the case of actual war, but also in the philosophical realm. Uh, when, you know, one morality, which is a tyrannical impulse, is articulated and set against another one. And most philosophers spend a great deal of time explaining why all other philosophers are wrong, psychologizing them, explaining why, you know, they were mistaken or misguided. And Nietzsche himself has done this. And so we can even imagine with Nietzsche himself, and I'm sure there are many people like this. You might get really enamored with Nietzsche, and then you come to a point where you realize that all of his affirmative philosophy is something that you can't really <laughs> agree with him or go with him on that. Right? You're like, what well, is aristocratic radicalism? And there's no free will. And like, I don't agree with any of that. The Overman that doesn't doesn't inspire me. Right? It just doesn't speak to you. But you remember all of his um, psychologizing and attacks on other philosophers, and you've internalized that, and you can still carry that on. Nietzsche says this has happened with Schopenhauer's opposition to Hegel. And he seems to almost lament the fact that the German culture through Hegel had this sort of subtlety of the historical sense, which is something that Nietzsche is very much a part of that same project, right? Understanding truth, understanding ourselves as historical beings, something moving, becoming, uh, not these like static categories or whatever, and... Um, and that Schopenhauer inadvertently has attacked and destroyed that, unfortunately, right? Um, or or has alienated a generation from thinking in this historical sense. Um, and that, in many ways, Schopenhauer himself is very metaphysical and mystical. And like even though Nietzsche tends to identify more with the sort of brute honesty and cynicism of Schopenhauer and his understanding of what life is as having no goal and being cyclical and being... Um, And with a lot of Schopenhauer's understandings of the limits of knowledge and truth, that nevertheless, the effect that Schopenhauer has had has maybe been to deliver people into a more metaphysical, mystical, uh, you know, orientation towards reality. Whereas Hegel, for all his faults, would have been promoting a more historical sense. Okay, so let's continue. Quote, altogether, taking a large view, it may have been above all what was human all too human. In short, the res- wretchedness of the most recent philosophy itself, that most thoroughly damaged respect for philosophy and opened the gates to the instinct of the rabble. Let us confess how utterly our modern world lacks the whole type of a Heraclitus, Plato, Empedocles, and whatever other names these royal and magnificent hermits of the spirit had, and how it is with considerable justification that confronted with such representatives of philosophy as we are today, thanks to fashion as much on top as they are really at bottom, In Germany, for example, the two lions of Berlin, the anarchist Eugene Düring and the amalgamist Eduard von Hartmann, a solid man of science, may feel that he is of a better type and descent. Uh, End quote. So, Nietzsche's saying, can't blame the scholar for regarding themselves, you know, the scientific man, regarding themselves as being of a better type than the philosopher, because look at the philosophers that we have. There, you know, he says, the anarchist Eugene Düring durings also an anti-semite uh, so he's like you know there there's this this vein of thought in Germany that Nietzsche is very much opposed to that I don't think is sufficiently understood when people um, probe into why Nietzsche is so against socialism the socialists the anarchists the class warriors in Germany during his time are almost all anti-semites and see the Jews as like their main enemy and uh, Nietzsche, Loathes that entire orientation toward the world because of how, and we got into this last week. It makes it it, it upholds the lowest common denominator, um, the most average type of person, and thus the most average types of drives, impulses, moral valuations, and you know the the simplistic sort of worldview of a salt of the earth, German Lutheran uh, rural type of person was, um, you know, probably not too dissimilar from the anti-Semites of our own day who just say, well, the Jews, like, they run the whole world, and so that's who we need to go after, right? And it's like this hatred of the exceptional people uh, channeled into, like, a stereotypical bogeyman, and uh, we're going to get ours by going and, like, equalizing everything for ourselves. And, you know, so, like, people will often, I think, from the left, uh, have, like, a rather scathing view of Nietzsche's anti-socialist views, but remember the context that he was in, um, you know, these people actually were rather um, pathetic uh, people in many ways, or the the socialist movements in Germany was tainted with all of these ideas. And then uh, von Hartmann attempted, he calls him an amalgamist because he tries to synthesize Schopenhauer's philosophy with Hegel's, which um, I have to confess, I'm not very familiar with von Hartmann. I know Nietzsche is very much against von Hartmann and talks about him quite a bit, but is I, the very notion of his project sounds so, so stupid to me that I, I've never, um, really delved into it, but maybe, you know, if the podcast goes on long enough, maybe we'll do a Von Hartmann hit piece, you know, like <laughs> go attack this 19th century philosopher that no one cares about anymore. But, um, so yeah, those, those, those are the most prominent German philosophies in Nietzsche's time. Very highly regarded, uh, Kaufman notes. And, uh, Meanwhile, Nietzsche's idea of who a philosopher is is Heraclitus, Plato, Empedocles, these people that he talked about in his lectures on the pre Platonic philosophers and philosophy in the tragic age of the Greeks. And that invites the description of being a commander, a self legislator, or as I've put it, like an epoch setter, somebody who shifted the paradigm. And in the case of Heraclitus, somebody who uh, he calls him like a noble, a royal and magnificent hermit of the spirit. He, he, he sets himself into, into solitude and distances himself from the ideas of the many. And in the views of the majority sees only error and falsehood, he looks to within himself his own reason, his own intuition, his own certainty of what the truth is. Um, and he often speaks of the pre-Platonics as men hewn from a single stone who had one sort of character. They had that one ruling thought, right? And they were uh, in many ways, uh, a pure, the purest expression of philosophy in that sense, um, because they were simply speaking from that one ruling thought without prior to, he does mention Plato here because Plato is of course, one of the greats and has this profound impact on the whole history of philosophy. And we've, much of this work is an attack on Platonism. But Plato is more of a systematizer. So he's not really, uh, you know, Nietzsche sees him as sort of like a combination of like Heraclitus and Pythagoras and Socrates. Um, So we'll continue quote, it is especially the side of those hodgepodge philosophers who call themselves philosophers of reality or positivists that is capable of injecting a dangerous mistrust into the soul of an ambitious young scholar. These are at best scholars and specialists themselves. That is palpable. They are all losers who have been brought back under the hegemony of science, after having desired more of themselves at some time, without having had the right to win this more, sorry, without having had the right to this more, and its responsibilities, and who now represent in word and deed, honorably, resentfully, and vengefully, the unbelief, and the masterly task, and the masterfulness of philosophy." And so he's saying many of the philosophers of today, the people who call themselves philosophers, the the philosophy dons, the philosophy professors, the people who publish papers on it, um, they desired to be, you know, they looked at these figures who were true philosophers. They desired something of that for themselves, but they didn't have it in them to become such a thing because they were botched by modernity or just because there's so few of people who are true exceptions like that. And now they put on these pretenses of being philosophers, whereas, in fact, they're only scholars, they're academics, they're categorizers, they're people who uh, curate knowledge. Um, So we'll uh, continue. Oh, and and, and before we continue, and as such, he, he specifically brings up the philosophers of reality, the positivists, the people who think that all you can know is that which is proved by experiment, they're simply become representatives for the hegemony of science and another you know their form of philosophy is in and of itself another disparagement against philosophy in the true sense as nietzsche understands it so we'll finish this aphorism quote finally how could it really be otherwise science is flourishing today and her good conscience is written all over her face while the level to which all modern philosophy has gradually sunk This rest of philosophy today invites mistrust and displeasure, if not mockery and pity. Philosophy reduced to theory of knowledge. In fact, no more than a timid epochism and doctrine of abstinence, a philosophy that never gets beyond the threshold and takes pains to to deny itself the right to enter. That is philosophy in its last throes, an end, an agony, something inspiring pity. How could such a philosophy dominate? And aside from the main point that Nietzsche is making there, There's, it's interesting the way that he discusses philosophy that never gets to the threshold and takes pains to deny itself the right to enter. What does he mean there? In the same sense, he was saying that many of the people with the scientific worldview distrust philosophy because they see it as maybe a backdoor for mysticism or rationalism to get in to our world of thought, and they want to keep their world of thought cleanly. That's the role that philosophy has now taken as the very gatekeeper of what is logical, what isn't, what is justifiable, what isn't. It's just a mere theory of knowledge uh, to facilitate that we keep science cleanly. It's a handmaiden of the science in that way. And therefore, it denies itself the right to enter. What does that mean? Well, philosophy as a theory of knowledge is a valuation of, we might say, positivism or pure scientific knowledge as of the highest value. And therefore, as (laughs) its own discipline which is the discipline of making valuations as of secondary importance to the quote-unquote objective facts of the world, determining whatever those are. right? And so that is why it's philosophy in its uh, death throes, because it's a doctrine of abstinences, of keeping itself clean from doing anything messy or irrational or drawing upon the instincts in order to say something like, Uh, yes to life. How could science have anything to say about (laughs) whether we uh, accept and affirm life or reject it? Of course it can't. And so the attitude in this new age has been, uh, in the words of Wittgenstein, uh, that where one cannot speak, one must remain silent. And uh, that the philosopher's role then is to ensure that we remain silent in all the proper ways and Only pursue those avenues of knowledge, which are scientific. And that is the sad state that philosophy is in. 205. Quote, The dangers for a philosopher's development are indeed so manifold today that one may doubt whether this fruit can still ripen at all. The scope and tower building of the sciences has grown to be enormous, and with this also the probability that the philosopher grows weary while still learning or allows himself to be detained somewhere to become a specialist. So he never attains his proper level the height for a comprehensive look for looking around for looking down or he attains it too late when his best time and strength are spent or impaired coarsened degenerated so his view his overall value judgment does not mean much anymore it may be precisely the sensitivity of his intellectual conscience that leads him to to delay somewhere along the way and to be late he is afraid of the seduction to become a dilettante a millipede an insect with a thousand antennae. He knows too well that whoever has lost his self-respect cannot command or lead in the realm of knowledge, unless he would like to become a great actor, a philosophical Cagliostro and Pied Piper, and short, a seducer. This is, in the end, a question of taste, even if it were not a question of conscience. Add to this, by way of once more doubling the difficulties for a philosopher, that he demands of himself a judgment, a yes or no, not about the sciences, but about life and the value of life, that he is reluctant to come to believe that he has a right or even a duty to such a judgment and must seek his way to this right and faith only from the most comprehensive, perhaps most disturbing and destructive, experiments, and frequently hesitates, doubts, and lapses into silence indeed the crowd has for a long time misjudged and mistaken the philosopher whether for a scientific man and ideal scholar or for a religiously elevated decentralized desecularized enthusiast and sought of god and if a man is praised today for living wisely or as a philosopher it hardly means more than prudently and apart wisdom seems to the rabble a kind of escape a means and trick for getting well out of a wicked game but the genuine philosopher as it seems to us, my friends, lives unphilosophically and unwisely, above all imprudently, and feels the burden and the duty of a hundred attempts and temptations of life. He risks himself constantly. He plays the wicked game." So a couple key points I just want to bring out here. Nietzsche begins by talking about the dangers for a philosopher's development. One of the dangers is that he could allow himself to be Detained and become a specialist, and you know he he may be afraid of becoming a dilettante, a millipede, an insect with a thousand antennae. You know, a jack of all trades and master of none, someone who knows a little about many things but really doesn't have any depth of knowledge. And we all know, you know, the dilettante is sort of like the the archetype of like the cultured, rich person of etiquette who you know has to. He has to know about all these sort of aspects of high society uh, just a little bit to make dinner conversation. But if, you know, you were to press him on any deep philosophical issues or, you know, he might uh, speak about art history and the things he knows about the few, you know, the few factoids he has. But if you really get into the details, you find out this man doesn't know anything. And that's sort of like the the nightmare of the, the person of knowledge right and so that is one of the reasons just one of the factors driving us to become detained and become a specialist and that in many ways the philosophical laborer or the scholar the academic drone is always a specialist and Nietzsche talks about this a little bit in part 1 of uh, the form of knowledge that most of us embrace and that this is the in many ways opposed to what the philosopher does and Again, I'm going to draw on Nietzsche's comments in the pre-Platonic lectures, where he says that one of the, the ways that philosophy distanced itself from uh, you know, folk wisdom, folkloric wisdom, uh, from the oracles and the mystics, and from uh, the natural sciences that made this leap into a new domain in ancient Greece, was what the philosopher attempts to do is to give a picture of universal existence in the form of abstract concepts. And when we consider philosophy uh, from that terminology, a picture of universal existence in the form of abstract concepts, Nietzsche's idea of, of standing on a height and looking down, it's not just like some elitist screed. I mean, what he's saying is that to really be a true philosopher, a philosopher in the sense of the word that Nietzsche understands it, is to give us the whole picture, to not just You know, concern himself with some little specialization of technical knowledge. That is a craft. That's a science. Philosophy, properly understood, wrestles with the questions of life and existence, and requires that you take that your perspective be elevated and given the bird's eye view, and that you give a picture of the world as seen from your vantage point. That's what real philosophy is. Um, and so this is why the scholar is, it's one of the other ways in which they're contrasted. And Nietzsche sort of brings out the ways in which this is why we don't have any like Heraclitus or Plato's. There are a million, um, incentives pulling you to not be the philosopher. And why is that? Well, towards the end of this passage, because the philosopher lives quote, unphilosophically and unwisely. What does that mean? Well, he sa he brings up that there is a sort of common turn of phrase that somebody might live wisely or as a philosopher. But wisdom to the common person means, uh, you know, what does he say? An escape, a means and a trick for getting well out of a wicked game. So they might look to the person who is prudent, you know, who lives frugally, who doesn't get, uh, you know, uh, there's a line from Lord of the Rings where one of the hobbits tells Frodo at the very beginning, he's like, keep your nose out of trouble and no trouble will come to you. And of course, it's supposed to be ironic because, Frodo does keep his nose out of trouble, and trouble still comes to him. Um, but that is the wisdom of the common person. And thus, the philosopher, in Nietzsche's view, actually lives unwisely. And uh, if I may be self-aggrandizing, again, you know, I, I think about this often with, uh, it's one of the main central topics in my book that I, I've uh, just finished the manuscript of, is wrestling with it uh, in regard to the arts. That the arts are one of the most unlucrative, uh, unwise professions to be involve your involve yourself in because you're almost certain to be met with constant disappointment and uh, to have to actually spend more of your resources with getting nothing in return. It doesn't actually make any sense from the standpoint of prudence, from the common, you know, the businessman's sense of what is wise. And yet we artists all do it. We give our whole lives to these, this sort of quixotic project and that the philosopher, I I think there is a parallel here. It is to what Nietzsche is saying that um, the philosopher by always setting himself against the morality and the conventions of his own age um, in many ways places himself into danger. And that the, the true philosopher Nietzsche has iterated throughout, there's sort of a subtext of experience. So, physical embodied world experience over you know these categorization schemes of knowledge and so on and so forth, that is the academic's domain. What Nietzsche uh, is pointing out here is that the philosopher may have to be uh, a tempter and a tempter, right? A seducer. And one final thing I want to say that calls back to a point I was making when analyzing the last aphorism. The philosopher demands of himself a judgment, a yes or no, not about the sciences, but about life and the value of life. And he is hesitant to even believe himself to have a right to this, except by all of these experiences of life. What's important, yet again, is that Nietzsche is defining the, defining the type of philosopher in that way, as being a legislator of value, of being a measurer of existence itself, even. And that this is the exact thing that the man of science or the scholar denies himself. And we increasingly see this in academia. I mean, if you read an academic text or an academic journal about basically any topic, they're so careful and hesitant to make any sort of unqualified statement or value judgment about anything. Everything has to be hedged. Everything has to be given with the qualification that, well, we don't know this for sure and we have to, you know, you read like a historian from a more romantic period of writing and it's just so much more fun to read because they're willing to just say things. And even if they were not always correct, uh, you can see sort of the calculated, very, uh, what would you say, constrained thought of the academic and how that has only developed to Uh, new heights today. Let's go to 206. Quote, compared to a genius, that is to one who either begets or gives birth, taking both terms in their most elevated sense, the scholar, the scientific average man, always rather resembles an old maid. Like her, he is not conversant with the two most valuable functions of man. Indeed, one even concedes to both, to the scholars and to old maids, as it were by way of compensation, that they are respectable. One stresses their respectability and yet feels annoyed all over at having to make this concession. Let us look more closely. What is the scientific man? To begin with, a type of man that is not noble, with the virtues of a type of man that is not noble, which is to say a type that does not dominate and is neither authoritative nor self-sufficient. He has industriousness, patient acceptance of his place and rank and file, evenness and moderation in his abilities and needs, an instinct for his equals and for what they need, For example that bit of independence and green pasture without which there is no quiet work that claim to honor and recognition which first of all presupposes literal recognition and recognizability that sunshine of a good name that constant attestation to of his value and utility which is needed to overcome again and again the internal mistrust which is the sediment in the hearts of all dependent men and herd animals The scholar also has as is only fair the diseases and bad manners of a type that is not noble he is rich in petty envy and has lynx eyes for what is base in nature's to whose heights he cannot attain he is familiar but only like those who let themselves go not flow and just before those who flow like great currents he freezes and becomes doubly reserved his eye becomes like a smooth and reluctant lake with not a ripple of delight or sympathy the worst and most dangerous thing of which scholars are capable comes from their sense of the mediocrity of their own type, from that Jesuitism of mediocrity which instinctively works at the annihilation of the uncommon man and tries to break every bent bow, or preferably to unbend it. Unbending, considerately, of course, with a solicitous hand, unbending with familiar pity, that is the characteristic art of Jesuitism which has always known how to introduce itself as a religion of pity, end quote. So think back to the preface. I think that explains many of the uh, comments on unbending in the relation to Jesuitism. Jesuitism being this sort of reconciliation between, we might say, the practical immoralities of you know running a church institution, running a, the church as a political power, and reconciling that with the spiritual and moral demands, the sort of the otherworldly, right? Um, and so, unbending the bow is releasing the tension from the bowstrings, the tension of those contradictions that may have allowed us to, uh, we might have been able to harness that tension. And Jesuitism is an attempt to unbend the bow. And here we see that that Jesuitism of mediocrity, uh, which instinctively works at the annihilation of the uncommon man tries to break every bent bow or preferably to unbend it, that is within the scholar. And what he what he means by, you know, they're their attacking of the uncommon man, he says he has they have lynx eyes, so they've got like cat like the eyes of a, a perceptive predatory cat for uh whatever is base in nature's whose heights he cannot attain. And this is very common, isn't it? I mean how much we love to find the faults, find what is human all too human. In people who have achieved great things, or have achieved a great status, or who are at the top of society, because we're able to then say, "Look, they're just like me." There was nothing special about him. Uh, look, you know Martin Luther King Jr. a great guy, but like you know, he cheated on his wife, and uh, you know he had some odious beliefs here and there, or you know, um, or you know, perhaps Napoleon was was just uh, resentful that he was a short man. Just like, you know, uh, I have all my resentments as a common person of the common morality. Napoleon was just like me. Or Nietzsche was just an incel who, uh, you know, hated women and, and found himself as like a a weak and physiologically crippled person. And so he writes this philosophy as a giant cope or, you know, um, blah, blah, blah. We can find any number of examples where we find the person who has achieved greatness in some way, a historical legacy, had all these accomplishments and find um the the and what Nietzsche' is saying is that this modern tendency to do this, which he sees uh within the scholar i mean this is a lot of what you might find in modern uh history in the opposition to things like what they disparagingly call great man history right is to to find the human the flawed the uh the way in which anything that appears to be great or exceptional really isn't. Um, you know, uh, that people are all the same. It's driven by this prejudice that people are ultimately all equal in enough equal capacities, at least roughly speaking, and uh, there's no true exception or, 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 you know, mutation within the system that can actually drive it forward. Um, this is a prejudice. This is a valuation that we've made, and it underlies all of our thought. And so that's another subtext throughout this criticism of the scholar, the academic, that They're just the intellectual recapitulation to this democratizing force, which is based on all of these prejudices that Nietzsche thinks. um, Well, uh, I'll take it away from Nietzsche. I would say Nietzsche's position is no more or less valid than this position uh, that we might say is like sort of a a, a Hegelian position or a Rousseauian position, uh, that people are basically good, people are basically all the same, there's some sort of natural equality between people, and the more that we've like realized this in history the more we've progressed but that progress has always come from the collective and whenever a great person happens to come along uh you know that's just because circumstances lined up for them to be to get lucky but they were basically just the same as everyone else um i would say it's very obvious that that kind of worldview spoken or unspoken predominates especially in academia and has flowed out through the rest of society and i'm not going to say it's wrong i would just say It's just as irrational and unscientific of a set of valuations as Nietzsche's is, and that is part of Nietzsche's criticism yet again. That beneath all of this, you have, you know, when he talks about the man of utility or how this is all just the demands of the rabble, that there is a series of irrational assumptions and valuations that is driving this just like every other set of ideas or principles, that it's not just dispassionate reason. And setting this, he's setting the sort of older, more aristocratic valuations against this. And I think, regardless of what Nietzsche's own opinions are, we can all gain gain great value from clashing those two perspectives against each other and seeing how I think there's truth to both of them. But that's just my my interjection here of my own sort of value judgment. Um, Otherwise, for the rest of this, I think uh, it's fairly obvious. what he's saying about the scholars and the rest of that passage um that i don't think i need to really like analyze it to death we can move on to 207 quote however gratefully we may welcome an objective spirit and is there anyone who has never been mortally sick of everything subjective and of his accursed ipsissimosity uh end quote uh, from ipsissima which means very own so another way of saying. Uh, Subjectivity, somebody who's become sick of of their own awareness that they're constantly seeing the world, a world that is their very own, that is their very own perspective, and yearns for uh, an objective uh, view of life and the world. Uh, In a way, you could say that this is like the scientific spirit, but I think that, I don't think that that in and of itself is what Nietzsche is criticizing that is something that i think comes out of the will to truth and is sort of like this this chasm between the subjective and objective that we're always trying to leap over just like the odd is chasm that we never can get over but we have an irrational drive to leap over it and nietzsche is going to address that here so quote in the end we also have to learn caution against our own gratitude and put a halt to the exaggerated manner in which the unselfing and depersonalization of the spirit is being celebrated nowadays as if it were the goal itself and redemption and transfiguration this is particularly characteristic of the pessimists school which also has good reasons for according the highest honors to disinterested knowledge end quote so very it's in a way what nietzsche is saying is rather straightforward there's also something very subtle going on here so disinterested knowledge that's the thing he attacked at the very beginning of the book and the entire book is premised on the rejection of disinterested knowledge, on the rejection of that view of what the will to truth is. What Nietzsche's saying here, though, is that there are good reasons for affording the highest honors to disinterested knowledge, and this ties in to sort of the point I've made earlier. Insofar as Nietzsche's goal is to pursue the will to truth as honestly as possible, which we have not done before. And even though he doesn't, so what might we say? Nietzsche thinks that we can't pursue the truth in a disinterested manner. The irony is that it is, an, we might say, it is in our own interest to regard the, our pursuit of truth within a self-interested manner as itself being unself-interested to maybe say that in a more plain way, we like to deny the fact that our pursuit of truth is interested and that itself is a natural thing to do. And therefore to suggest that all of our pursuits of truth are self-interested requires a degree of a divestment of our own self-interest even to get there. That it's paradoxical, and this is another reason why Nietzsche says we have to free ourselves from the tyranny of words, because I think the truth that he's referring to beneath the linguistic trouble and stating it is true (laughs) for lack of a better word um that i don't think it is actually paradoxical in insofar as saying like okay we all (laughs) philosophy comes out of psychology that's not like a paradoxical statement but when you really consider that the commitments that you have to um leave by the wayside in order to make that statement right that you have to be willing to acknowledge your own truths as being merely perspectival. For example, there is an element of that, which is unself-interested. And so Nietzsche's project has that sort of weird paradoxical character when it comes to the relationship to truth that makes it almost impossible to talk about in a clear way that confuses a lot of people. Um, But I guess I would just say Nietzsche understands the motivation for welcoming a objective worldview, for seeking for that. And that in some sense, that's what he's seeking to do. It's simply that, again, perhaps ironically, like Kant, he has defined sort of the limits of what the objective worldview can do, that it takes place within the human perspective, that it takes place within this phenomenal embodied world. It's not an objective, intelligible world uh, in some sense, that the actual true disinterested knowledge does not exist. Again, is that statement itself a statement of true disinterested knowledge? And Nietzsche is forced to say, as he reminds us at the beginning of this passage, that no, it is not. Um, And so in a way, the scholar's mistake is that he is the one who is most committed to this idea, of discerning objective scientific truths truths about a world independent of human perception or valuation of it this is like the dream of the modern academic the modern scholar the modern person of science who has rejected philosophy and only wants the knowledge that can be given to him by experiment and so again it's almost paradoxical but nietzsche's own disinterested objective skeptical approach has exposed them as not actually being disinterested, objective, and skeptical. That is their mistake. Um, And that is precisely then the problem that he is going to point to with them. Nevertheless, there's a way in which Nietzsche's project is an attempt to more sincerely or more honestly attain that very same goal. It's just that we could say, uh, I guess, a short version of uh, exegesizing this paragraph is that the scholars are recapitulating to Platonism once again. And it's yet another subtext of the problem being that they fail to recognize the ways in which their own irrational valuations are guiding their entire approach to life and to knowledge here as everywhere else. So continuing with the text. "...the objective person who no longer curses and scolds like the pessimist, the ideal scholar in whom the scientific instinct, after thousands of total and semi-failures, for once blossoms and blooms to the end, is certainly one of the most precious instruments there are, but he belongs in the hand of one more powerful. He is only an instrument. Let us say he is a mirror." He has no end in himself. The objective man is indeed a mirror. He is accustomed to submit before whatever wants to be known without any other pleasure than that found in knowing and mirroring. He waits until something comes and then spreads himself out tenderly, lest light fo- footsteps in the quick passage, passage excuse me of spirit-like beings should be lost on his plane and skin. End quote. And I think this passage, yet again, hmm. It shows science as subject to the dominion of philosophy, and we could even consider philosophy as understood in a very broad, extended sense here, to the extent that philosophy is characterized by values creation, by a perspective that tries to encompass the entire world, the totality of uh, being or becoming. And so Nietzsche is saying here that the scientific aptitude ought to be subject to that values creating activity, that the acquisition of knowledge or the acquisition of truth is something that nature and life can successfully do without, but it can be an enhancement to life. And it's with this proper understanding, that conscious awareness, this bringing into conscious awareness, this sort of, uh, the reflection of the objective world around you, for whatever that might mean, for all the complications we might add to that statement. And Nietzsche says it's like mirroring, right? Because we see our own world, we see by means of our human head and cannot cut it off. And one wonders what would remain if it had been cut off, as Nietzsche says in human, all too human. And so that it is a sort of, he says, a knowing and mirroring. And yet this, it's not as if this does not give us power and is not itself an elevation of man. In a way, it, it defines us, it identifies us as the thinking being, right? But that more fundamentally life is about valuing, measuring, being different. Um, all of these things that he says about life in aphorism, way back in aphorism 16, I believe it was. I might be wrong about that. You can go back and listen to the... Uh, episodes at the beginning of this analysis um, for you know what Nietzsche says about nature and its um, valuating, estimating, preferring, being different, being arbitrary, right? That the conscious world again is we've misunderstood the prop, the relationship between the conscious world and the physical embodied world, the valuing world, the sensing world, the judging world, uh, etc. So with that in mind. We'll look at the next paragraph of this aphorism. Quote, Whatever still remains in him of a person strikes him as accidental, often arbitrary, still more often disturbing. To such an extent has he become a passageway and reflection of strange forms and events, even to himself. He recollects himself only with an effort, and often mistakenly, he easily confuses himself with others, he errs about his own needs, and is in this respect alone, unsubtle and slovenly. Perhaps his health torments him, or the pettiness and cramped atmosphere of wife and friend, or the lack of companions and company. Yes, he forces himself to reflect on these torments, in vain. Already his thoughts roam to a more general case, and tomorrow he knows no more than he did yesterday, how he might be helped. He has lost any seriousness for himself, also time. He is cheerful, not for lack of distress, but for lack of fingers and handles for his need." his habit of meeting everything and experience halfway, the sunny and impartial hospitality with which he accepts everything that comes his way, his type of unscrupulous benevolence, of dangerous unconcern about yes and no. Alas, there are causes enough in which he has to pay for these virtues. And as a human being, he becomes all too easily the caput mortuum, or the dross, of these virtues. End quote. So what remains in him of a person seems accidental, that all the things that make us a Person that truly comprise who and what we are are comprised of our actions in some sense, our memories, our experiences, the circumstances of our upbringing, our physiology, our genetics. um, All of these things that have shaped us and molded us uh, seem so arbitrary and accidental um, in in the mind of the scientific person. Who has come to identify with the discerning intellect. And thus, again, another subtle irony here is that they tend to like really uphold this idea of free will or free agency or attributing only something is only not random if it's intentional. Right. And so uh, that's like the funny way in which uh, atheists, uh, the new atheists were in a sort of strange dialectic with the Christianity they rejected by considering the world as like accidental in some sense or speaking of it in that language they're like like you can just sense the void of god there right the the death of god in their thought is that well without intention everything is random uh when in fact you know we've already sort of discussed Nietzsche's views on free will and intentionality and all of that throughout this text so we can kind of expose that as yet another prejudice of the scholarly type or of the man of utility whatever we want to call this type of person, the modern person who lives in a mechanistic worldview still capitulates to completely irrational demands by which they can live and conceive of themselves or understand themselves as this intelligent being. But uh, you know, and that so that ends up regarding things like one's genetics or ancestry or the culture that they were brought up in, or the circumstances of, that characterize their early life and their childhood and their education—all of these are just random factors, right? Because I didn't choose them; uh, they weren't. There was no intentionality behind them. Um, and part of Nietzsche's project is to like <laughs> shake us out of that kind of uh, view. Um, but uh, I digress. I think uh, a lot of this passage is, is relatively clear. The very important part is towards the end this sort of dangerous unconcern about yes and no, unscrupulous benevolence, sunny and impartial hospitality. And he talked about this before in part one of the scholar's sort of, you know, half-hearted, or what does he say? Um, Right, he says it's a halfway sunny and impartial hospitality. Um, In so many words, the, the fact that the scholar is groomed, trained, brought up Uh, in this institution, to not take anything too seriously, to be as dispassionate as possible, and therefore to retain this sort of, uh, Nietzsche calls it sunny, but we might say, uh, you know, a sort of easy sense of uh, half-blissful detachment, and that this is what characterizes the virtues of your average scholar. And Nietzsche addresses this in the Antichrist as well as something that sort of bothers him. And, and it's something that many people take from Nietzsche is that, uh, you know, well, we values are all contingent and relative and perspectival, so it doesn't matter what values you follow at all. And, you know, sort of I understand why everyone in the various moral systems and metaphysical belief systems that... Exist in the world, religions and the different world cultures, and there are different moralities of different societies. I understand how they came to these beliefs. Nietzsche outlines a lot of that in this book as in through a natural history, right? And I understand, you know, how all of these clashing perspectives have come to be, and therefore I can sort of uh, live with all of them being in contradiction without having to affirm or deny any of them, and that's the cosmopolitan attitude of modernity and Nietzsche specifically criticizes that in the antichrist of this sort of like lukewarm attitude towards life that forgives everything because it understands everything and this is the attitude uh, that he is describing here that we don't have to take a stance a yes or no to life we don't have to make these irrational valuations where one cannot speak logically and clearly we should simply fall silent and just say i affirm life or i deny life i mean what does that mean what a vague and almost uh you know, religious style or, or, or mystical way of speaking about things, right? It's so, because you almost couldn't really fully define what the terms mean. You couldn't, you couldn't provide a definite boundary about, around what it means to say yes to life um, in all cases and to exclude all the cases you wanted to exclude in any clear way. It, it would be linguistically impossible because what that means is going to mean something different to so many different people. And so, and Nietzsche is the kind of person who will say, you know, the best virtues that we can have are completely peculiar to ourselves an individual. So we can't even give them a name because to give it a name is to try and communicate it and suggest that it could exist within others. And that sort of the most, the the best things about ourselves, um, the greatest things about ourselves are those which only we ourselves can know Um, that the, what would we say, the best uh, aspects of your personality are indescribable because they are solely you and cannot be made into a general case. But this is the kind of person who wants to put everything into a general case—a concept, you know—it's it, not communicable unless it's put into the general case, the general category, and um, that is the mindset of the scholar. But in a way, it's just the—it's just Socratism. It's just the intelligible world as the true world taken through to its logical conclusions. Um and so we'll continue. Uh, quote If love and hatred are wanted from him, I mean love and hatred as God, woman, and animal understand them, he will do what he can and give what he can, but one should not be surprised if it is not much, if just here he proves inauthentic, fragile, questionable, and worm eaten. His love is forced, his hatred artificial and rather untour de force, a little vanity and exaggeration after all he is genuine only insofar as he may be objective only in his cheerful totalism is he still nature and natural his mirror soul eternally smoothing itself out no longer knows how to affirm or negate he does not command neither does he destroy uh, i despise almost nothing he says with leibniz one should not overlook and u- underestimate that almost End quote. and so that almost is nietzsche pointing yet again to the fact That uh, there are valuations beneath the scientific worldview. They're simply they're all the more dangerous because they are dogmatically accepted without examination. Because it's almost as if they're not even there. And these include those things like the doctrine of utility, the free will doctrine, the uh, idea of approaching the world in terms of categories of essence or being. Um, These things go unexamined and. Most of the rest of this little chunk of the text, what Nietzsche's talking about, we can see very clearly in like the modern like practices of virtue signaling, right? Uh, if love and hatred are wanted from you, you know, perhaps it, really what Nietzsche means when he's saying this, I think, is when you you have some duty or demand that you express some strong emotional, um, you know, commitment in terms of your values, insofar as they should reflect the values of modernity, of which the scholar, the academic, is the, you know, the most zealous priest of this whole, like, modern ideology. But he's so, um, because of his temperament, it's always sort of inauthentic and artificial. Um, And it's not because he might not share the same valuations, it's just that, as he says, his love is forced, his hatred artificial. Like, these actually strong, emotional, these, like, living expressions of being a flesh and blood person are kind of stunted at this point because of this entire sort of like mechanistic accidental understanding of the world i mean ultimately it's it's rather nihilistic in nietzsche's understanding of what nihilism is so uh let's continue quote neither is he a model man he does not go before anyone nor behind altogether he places himself too far apart to have any reason to take sides for good or evil when confusing him for so long with the philosopher with the cesarean cultivator and cultural dynamo one accorded him far too high honors and overlooked his most essential characteristics. He is an instrument, something of a slave, though certainly the most sublime type of slave, but in himself nothing, almost nothing. The objective man is an instrument, a precious, easily injured and clouded instrument for measuring and as an arrangement of mirrors an artistic triumph that deserves care and honor. But he has no goal, no conclusion in sunrise, No complimentary man in whom the rest of existence is justified. No termination, and still less a beginning, a begetting, and first cause. Nothing tough, powerful, self-reliant that wants to be master. Rather, only a delicate, carefully dusted, fine, mobile pot for forms that still has to wait for some content and substance in order to shape itself accordingly. For the most part, a man without substance and content. A selfless man. Consequently, also nothing for women, in parenthesis uh into quote and so the rest of this i think we should just call to mind what nietzsche said about the collective morality snuffing out the instinct for commanding and leaving only the instinct for obeying that is the type of the scholar par excellence he's the most sophisticated subtle sublime rarefied type of slave and so in some ways he's like an exceptional average person He's, he's exceptional in his mediocrity, almost to the point of, you know, where we can really admire the um, the power of the academic intellect, the objective, the scientific intellect. And who could deny that in terms of just technological advancement, right? But, I mean, I think it's a very simple formula here, even for the people with the most inclinations to scientism and their thought listening, I think we'll agree. Like, you know, that movie Oppenheimer just came out. um, There is the scientific knowledge of how you split the atom, but we all recognize that the valuation as to how that power should be used is of primary importance, right? Um, At least, you know, that the scientific mind in that case was acting as an instrument of the US government, just as Heisenberg over in Nazi Germany was acting as an instrument of the Reich. And so both of them had... Their own values structure that they wanted to manifest in the world and in reality, the scientific instinct, the ability to uncover the subjective knowledge of the world, which gives us immense power to to discern past what the naked eye can see and to use tools to see this invisible world of particles and to mathematically measure it such that you could create this most complex chain of reactions ever, to create like destruction we'd never really dreamed of before. Uh, it really, I mean, I don't think there's anything that you could say matters to human beings more than <laughs> the valuation of how that power should be used or that we would all say that the, the scientific power uh, that is manifest by the mind of an Oppenheimer should stand in that type of relationship to an orienting principle. Um, and, you know, for, again, all of the Nietzsche's own talk about himself being an immoralist and the way I've described this text as an immoralist, um, sort of starting position for philosophy rather than a moralizing one, Nietzsche still recognizes that moral values are indispensable to human beings and that we are destined for them as the measuring animal. And... That the the value, the the process of uh, moral valuation, perhaps most importantly, is just not. It's not one that's arrived at through rational deliberation. That is the mistake. Uh, is the mistake thinking that the path of the scientific man or the academic can tell us how to live, when in fact they should only be an instrument. And um, the 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 uh, lines here about uh he's less a beginning or a begetting or a first cause calls back to mind of you know the the scholar is not someone who begets or to who gives birth these you know human functions of reproduction he's at best comparable to an old midwife and uh that you know again something instrumental for the process of life which is not a detriment to it if in that proper relationship um so we'll continue 208 quote when a philosopher suggests these days that he is not a skeptic i hope this is clear from the description just given of the objective spirit everybody is annoyed one begins to look at him apprehensively one would like to ask to ask so much indeed among timid listeners of whom there are legions now he is henceforth considered dangerous. It is as if, at his rejection of skepticism, they heard some evil, menacing rumble in the distance, as if a new explosive were being tried somewhere, a dynamite of the spirit, perhaps a newly discovered Russian nihiline, a pessimism bonne voluntatis that does not merely say no, want no, but horrible thought does no. Against this type of goodwill, a will to the actual active denial of life, there is today, according to common consent, no better soporific and sedative than skepticism, the gentle, fair, lulling poppy of skepticism, and even Hamlet is now prescribed by the doctors of the day against the spirit and its underground rumblings. Aren't our ears filled with wicked noises as it is? asks the skeptic as a friend of quiet and almost as a kind of security police. This subterranean no is terrible. Be still at last, you pessimistic moles. End quote. So, Nietzsche says, we're annoyed when a philosopher is not a skeptic these days. And so he's implying that there's a a type of skepticism that is sort of blankets everything. And we might like sort of equate this with the idea that the only absolute, the only absolutism that we permit in the academy these days is relativism, right? The only absolute is that we have to be relativists and that this is in some sense like a form of skepticism and that we're allowed to not take any particular values set so seriously, uh, or any particular metaphysical or moral assertion, anything within the domain of philosophy, we can sort of regard at arm's length. um, You know, again, this is the pattern of the scholar, to not really have to say yes or no to to anything, to be comfortable with our yes and no at the same time, uh, to understand it but not have to really weigh in on it or treat it as something that actually genuinely has an effect on our lives. And so when a philosopher comes around who suggests, you know, maybe they're willing to affirm some sort of belief, um, you know, we look at them sort of in annoyance or maybe with a suspicion that they're trying to return to the time when there were superstitious traditional beliefs, beliefs that people held without any ounce of skepticism in them at all. Um, having never really applied those beliefs to, to questioning. You know, the, the pre-Socratic kind of certainty of the Athenian nobility, for example. And his comments that, you know, this is a pessimism that does not merely say no and want no, but actually does no. What Nietzsche is suggesting here is that by because everything is blanketed in the academy today with this sort of lukewarm skepticism, um, skepticism as a sort of reflexive, right? A reflexive dismissal, um, and you know the way he describes it with the words of Hamlet: "Are our ears filled with wicked noises?" As it is, again the the subtext here of leaving the foundational valuations that we have relatively unexamined, pretending as if these are simply objective truths in and of themselves, even though they aren't. Um, and then uh, letting that all sort of remain invisible to us and not raising questions about it because that's too troubling, right? Um, we, we might think of the the teacher, uh, the sleep teacher from uh, you know the early part of Thus book Zarathustra who teaches the people how to get a good night's sleep. Uh, in any case, the reason why the non-skeptical philosopher, the person who's maybe willing to go out on a limb – and make unqualified statements, and uh, assert something that, you know, might partake of this realm of irrational valuations without having the pretense that he's arrived at it by scientific experimentation to step outside of that, is representing something that's an attack, a no to the entire moral metaphysical framework of modernity, the dogmatism, uh, the Platonism of modernity. And The funny thing is their skepticism, their professed skepticism, their defense mechanism of dismissing everything outside of their worldview, it claims to say no and to want no, but it doesn't actually perform that no, that rejection. Whereas the person who uh, declares they're not a skeptic actually is performing that no against society. Um, And so we'll move on with the text. Quote, For the skeptic, being a delicate creature, is frightened all too easily. His conscience is trained to quiver at every no, indeed, even at a yes that is decisive and hard, and to feel as if it had been bitten. Yes and no, that goes against his morality. Conversely, he likes to treat his virtue to a feast of noble abstinence, say, by repeating Montaigne's, What do I know? Or Socrates's, I know that I know nothing. Or, Here I don't trust myself, here no door is open to me. Or, even if one were open, why enter right away? Or, what use are all rash hypotheses? Entertaining no hypotheses at all might well be part of good taste. Must you insist on immediately straightening what is crooked, on filling up every hole with oakum? Isn't there time? Doesn't time have time? Oh, you devilish brood, are you incapable of waiting? The uncertain has its charms, too. The sphinx, too, is a Circe. Circe, too, was a philosopher. End quote. Um, so the yes and no goes against his morality. It is there is a cosmopolitan morality that basically says it's wrong it's absolutely wrong to make an absolute statement. You have to always remain within relativism and these sort of uh the salves that they use they employ Montaigne's what do I know? Socrates, I know that I know nothing or I simply I can't trust myself. Right? That these um I'm reminded of an earlier passage in this book where Nietzsche says there are those souls, um, there may be those who out of a sort of real devotion to the truth would prefer a certain nothing to an uncertain something to lay down on. But then Nietzsche says, and die. This is actually nihilism and a sign of a despairing soul. And so this this chunk of the text really points out how This form of skepticism, the common skepticism of modernity is yet another manifestation of this nihilistic impulse, um, once again laundered through this sort of scientific worldview that uh, uses all of these sort of catchphrases of I only know I know nothing in order to not have to take responsibility for making a valuation, for making some sort of assertion about the value of life. Um, and so when he says the Sphinx, too, is a Circe, Circe, too, was a philosopher. Again, a callback to human, all too human. Circe is the witch in the Odyssey who turns uh, Odysseus's crew into pigs. So she turns men into animals. Uh, Nietzsche says, you know, that error has turned animals into men. Could truth turn men into animals again? This doesn't mean, you know, sort of like a regression to, you know, bestial like unconscious just savagery um but what it means is you know that we have lost the understanding that men are actually animals human beings are animals and with the understanding that we are indeed like the other animal species all the other living beings on the planet Circe 2 is a philosopher by uh, revealing this truth to us um Okay, let's continue. Oh, and the Sphinx, of course, is the, 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 you know, the, the questioner, the riddle giver, right? Nietzsche references the Sphinx at the very beginning of uh, this text in part one. As, you know, uh, was it, who, which of us was Oedipus and which was the Sphinx? Did the question put itself to us or did we demand the question? He's having sort of all these uh, meditations on the will to truth so uh, we'll continue quote thus a skeptic consoles himself and it is true that he stands in need of some consolation for skepticism is the most spiritual expression of a certain complex physiological condition that in ordinary language is called nervous exhaustion and sickliness it always develops when races or classes that have long been separated are crossed suddenly and decisively in the new generation that as it were has inherited its blood diverse standard Sorry, in its blood, diverse standards and values. Everything is unrest, disturbance, doubt, attempt. The best forces have an inhibiting effect. The very virtues do not allow each other to grow and become strong. Balance, a center of gravity, and perpendicular poise are lacking in body and soul. But what becomes sickest and degenerates most in such hybrids is the will. They no longer know independence of decisions and the intrepid sense of pleasure in willing. They doubt the freedom of the will even in their dreams. Our Europe of today being the arena of an absurdly sudden attempt at a radical mixture of classes, and hence races, is therefore skeptical in all its heights and depths, sometimes with a mobile skepticism which leaps impatiently and lasciviously from branch to branch, uh, sometimes dismal like a cloud overcharged with question marks, and often mortally sick of its will. Paralysis of the will. Where today does one not find this cripple sitting? And often in such finery. How seductive the finery looks. This disease enjoys the most beautiful pomp in the lie costumes, and most of what today displays itself in the showcases, for example, as objectivity, being scientific. L'art pour l'art. Pure knowledge, free of will, is merely dressed up skepticism and paralysis of the will. For this diagnosis of the European sickness, I vouch. Uh, End quote. And so, like that last line there, pure pure knowledge free of will. That is straight out of Schopenhauer. That's, in some sense, Schopenhauer's goal. That is his deliverance, his negation of the will is to use the intellect to be a purely willless subject of knowing. That's merely dressed up skepticism and paralysis of the will. I mean, we also could call to mind Nietzsche's comments earlier in the book about um, the ways in which Denial of the free will doctrine is simply a desire to abdicate one's own responsibility, and simply speaks to their own deficit of 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 willpower. In so many words, uh, that it's just, even though Nietzsche does have his own opinions in a quote unquote objective sense of whether the will is free, that ultimately it's just an expression of your perspective and your position in society, your valuations that flow out of where that position is and so on and so forth. Much of these passages though, Nietzsche's talking about races. Again, you can refer to earlier episodes about this. This is kind of antiquated 19th century thinking. To update it for modern day, we can just look at it as a people who are raised in a time of an intermixing of cultures, which I think actually makes a lot more sense. Um, he he, I think the impulse with Nietzsche is to make everything physiological, right? First and foremost. And... I, I just don't think that that's necessarily... It's not going to necessarily be the most persuasive thing for modern audiences to read. Maybe that's just fine for you know Nietzsche because he obviously doesn't uh, care much about our modern ideas. But I think it's easy enough to just look at the fact that we do live in these sort of cosmopolitan melting pots, as they call them, right? If you grow up in New York City, how many cultures live in New York City, right? Um, it's not really a, an issue of ethnicity, but like... You know people from more than a hundred countries probably almost every country on earth live in New York City and um, they all you know bring different sets of religions and moral and cultural ideas that then intermingle and then generations are born with like exposure to every kind of perspective on life that's ever existed on earth which I think Nietzsche does have a point that if you were raised in, say a Bronze Age pre-modern society where the only thing you knew was for example Uh, you know, Persia, (laughs) you're just a Persian, and the truth is Zoroastrianism, and the, um, you know, the god is Ahura Mazda, and you're certain of this, and maybe you have some, like, you know, secondhand knowledge of what other cultures are like, but you know that they're just wrong and live in error and ignorance, right, in comparison to your great culture. There is something about that what would you say? Irrational certainty and unself-examined life that allows one to have something like a sense of pleasure in their willing to say, okay, this goal that's been set before me by society is in fact the only goal. There's no doubt. There's no decision that has to be made or prioritization of various cultural mores that have to be um, like balanced with one another in, in your own perception of it as an individual. It's all just sort of inherited And uh, this allows you to pursue your goals wholeheartedly, I think, and that there is, uh, you know, again, we return to the idea that there are exceptional people that can be sort of torn in two directions by two poles and live in this complexity and use that tension to elevate themselves. But for the majority of people, um, having an indiscriminate mixing of value structures can actually be rather confusing and like a hindrance. Uh, I'm not going to read the rest of this um, section, uh, two oh eight. Um, I'll just a couple little like excerpts. Nietzsche basically gives his analysis of where, you know, the sickness of the will. He says is spread unevenly across Europe, and so he sort of talks about the cultures where the the will is strongest and where it is most sick. And uh, you know, he says the will, for example, it's a little greater here in Germany, and more so in the German German North than the center of Germany. But much stronger yet in England, Spain, and Corsica, um, you know. He says in, in in France today the will is accordingly most seriously sick. So uh, you know, I think this is this is a passage where I think you could rightly criticize Nietzsche because of the vague nature of what he's saying and the fact that he is making statements that are very I, I don't just want to say unquantifiable, but um, in some sense are. This is almost just like an artistic uh, passage in a way, because there's no there's no possibility even of rigor. Um, but he says one of the interesting things, it is strongest and most amazing by far in that enormous empire in between where Europe, as it were, flows back into Asia and Russia. He says that the strength of will has long been accumulated and stored up. And the reason why that particular comment is interesting is because he says at the end of the passage that he hopes for quote, such an increase in the menace of russia that europe would have to resolve to become menacing too namely to acquire one will by means of which a new caste that would rule europe a long terrible will of its own that would be able to cast its goals millennia hence so the long drawn out comedy of its many splinter states as well as its dynastic and democratic splinter wills would come for an end Time for petty politics is over. The very next century will bring the fight for the dominion of the earth, the compulsion to large-scale politics, end quote. And that's the most fascinating aspect of this, that where it's most fascinating because Nietzsche actually speaks in concrete terms here, right? Rather than sort of evaluating this elusive sort of quality of the strength of will of a given, you know, nation or state, which seems very difficult to sort of, I don't know, put into concrete terms, but he does it in this last passage by sort of just pointing out uh, the, what would we say, like the monolithic nature of the Russian empire's cultural identity in spite of the fact of like ruling so many different peoples in contrast to European civilization, which Nietzsche sees like splintering off and all of these sort of like dynastic like rival dynastic interests and now like the democratic reaction to that uh you know it's sort of like shunting off the european will in multiple directions and i guess what you could say is in terms of values or a goal to aim for russia seems to have one it has this national conception of its own greatness that it's aiming for whereas europe doesn't know europe as a whole doesn't have a goal it's an, it, currently at war with itself over what the goal should be um, you know and it's tending towards like this democratic socialistic goal perhaps, but uh, Nietzsche is hoping for basically what Peter Turchin would call the metaethnic frontier the tension at the metaethnic frontier to grow to the point of conflict so that the external threat of a powerful unified enemy will force Europe to become powerful and unified itself, and he conceives which I think is unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you want to look at it accurate if we believe the work of robert mickels in political parties that this greater strength of organization this organizing principle by which europe will be unified will lead to a stronger hierarchy and a new oligarchy because he who says organization says oligarchy and so uh and that nietzsche thinks that this new this is probably one of the passages where Nietzsche gives us the most concrete sort of political vision that he hopes for. And the strange thing is, he might have been somewhat correct in his prediction because of what happens following this. I mean, Russia does become the antagonist of Europe for the next century and then arguably into this one. And, uh, well, not arguably, I mean, obviously now. um, In the last couple of years, it's become uh obvious yet again and Europe has unified into one effective political entity you know under NATO and the EU um which happened during the pressure of the Cold War to compete with Russia um this did happen there was an orienting value structure and Europe acquired a terrible will of its own under which all of these regional powers and dynasties and even the democratic spirit were sublimated, right? The democratic spirit is sublimated under the EU. You can have your little democracy in your own country, but the EU parliament uh, will sort of do what it wishes. Not really the EU parliament, even the the unelected bureaucracies, the non, non-majoritarian uh, institutions that are a large part functionally of how the EU manages Europe, right? That even the democratic spirit is sublimated under this uh common identity and goal that Europe now possesses. And so Nietzsche was actually correct, which is rather interesting. Okay. Uh 209. Quote: To what extent the new warlike age into which we Europeans have evidently entered may also favor the development of another and stronger type of skepticism. On that, I want to comment for the present only in the form of a parable, which those who like German history should understand readily. That unscrupulous enthusiast for handsome and very tall grenadiers, who, as king of Prussia, this is Friedrich Wilhelm I, uh, who reigned 1713 through 40, brought into being a military and skeptical genius. And thus, when you come right down to it, that new type of German, which has just now come to the top triumphantly, the questionable mad father of Frederick the Great himself had the knack and lucky claw of genius, though only at one point he knew what was missing in Germany at that time, and what lack was a hundred times more critical and urgent than say the lack of education and social graces his antipathy his excuse me his antipathy against the young Frederick came from the fear of a deep instinct; men were missing, and he suspected with the most bitter dismay that his own son was not man enough. In this, he was deceived, but who, in his place, wouldn't have deceived himself about that? He saw his son surrender to atheism, to esprit, to the hedonistic frivolity of clever Frenchmen. In the background, he saw that great vampire, the spider of skepticism. He suspected the incurable misery of a heart that is no longer hard enough for evil or good, of a broken will that no longer commands, no longer is capable of commanding. Meanwhile, there grew up in his son that more dangerous and harder new type of skepticism. And who knows how much it owed precisely to the hatred of the father and the icy melancholy of a will condemned to solitude. The skepticism of audacious manliness, which is most closely related to the genius for war and conquest, and first entered Germany in the shape of the great Frederick. This skepticism despises and nevertheless seizes. It undermines and takes possession. It does not believe, but it does not lose itself in the process. It gives the spirit dangerous freedom but it is severe on the heart. It is the German form of skepticism, which, in the form of a continued Frederickianism that has been sublimated spiritually, brought Europe for a long time under the hegemony of the German spirit and its critical and historical mistrust. Thanks to the unconquerably strong and tough virility of the great German philologists and critical historians, viewed properly all of them were also artists of destruction and dissolution a new concept of the german spirit crystallized gradually in spite of all romanticism and music and philosophy and the inclination to virile skepticism became a decisive trait now for example as an intrepid eye now as the courage and hardness of analysis as the tough will to undertake dangerous journeys of exploration and spiritualized north pole expeditions under desolate and dangerous skies Uh, okay. So what he's talking about here is Frederick the Great. Uh, transforms the entire German culture into what does he say? Uh, he says the form of a continued Frederickianism brought Europe for a long time under the hegemony of the German spirit and its critical and historical mistrust. Uh, we would say, and he says the uh, a virile skepticism, so we say a potent skepticism, right, became a decisive trait. And he says, uh, as courage and hardness of analysis, an intrepid eye, and this tough will to undertake dangerous journeys. And so he's speaking here, he gives us the example of Frederick, you know, speaking in the political sense, right, in the embodied physical world, and then imports this metaphor into what became of the German spirit the german geist the german psyche following frederick in the in the wake of frederickianism as he calls it and we can't help but think of schopenhauer and nietzsche's comments about the character of the 19th century that uh you know arrives you know some half century later after frederick uh in the wake of him that nietzsche calls in will to power honest but more gloomy and that this is in spite of Schopenhauer's resignationism and uh, the fact that he, you know, turns the German mind with his unintash- un- unintelligent wrath against Hegel to, you know, a new sort of like, uh, you know, he's a step on the road to this new European Buddhism, right? All these things that Nietzsche despises, he still has that heroic quality that he praised him for in Schopenhauer as educator of being willing to take that uh, cold cynical honest view of life take that road no matter where it leads you and that there is a there is a type of spirit you might say that approaches skepticism from that way as like a north pole expedition right remember how Nietzsche uses cold and hiking in the cold and mountaineering as like metaphors for the truth of like the truth is a cold thing right the 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 warmth of uh you know the the sirocco of modern values and uh the comfort of modern uh positions on metaphysics and morals and the fact that we uh can just get by with a yes and a no and without having to come down on the size of of these issues um that you know the, those are the metaphors that he uses as the sirocco the mediterranean the warm winds of the mediterranean right the warm desert wind whereas uh you know, for Nietzsche describes in the Antichrist, says we're Hyperboreans. That's the the mythological place of ancient Greece that's like in the far distant north. And so going to seek the truth is hiking up into the cold, frigid winds. That's often the metaphors that Nietzsche uses. And this is the type of skepticism that he actually has praise for. So he was just condemning this modern form of skepticism that... At bottom is just an expression of an instinct to, uh, to avoid conflict, to avoid letting any, uh, irrational gunk make its way into your, you know, mechanistic scientific worldview, uh, to hold everything at arm's length, to really attempt to be dispassionate and which is all sort of a representation of nihilism versus this type of skepticism, which is a desire to voluntarily expose yourself to difficult questions, to, um, the harsh cold of you know really stepping outside of the warmth and comfort of the metaphysical and moral assumptions of your your time, and that this is the the way that Nietzsche tends to see figures like Schopenhauer, in spite of all of his flaws. That that is the heroism of Schopenhauer is his uh, desire to be um, to know the truth and make an enemy of his own happiness in knowing the truth, and that there's something very vital about that. Of wanting to, in the same way, he talked about Greek tragedy as like a neurosis of the healthy, in his *Birth of Tragedy* 1886 preface, that um, perhaps somebody could be so well adjusted to life that they would seek out what is horrific and uh, tragic and horrifying uh, as a sort of uh, as a need of someone who is so overflowing with life and health and in the same way that you know there might be such an abundance of life in you that you desire to expose yourself to this adventure in the harsh cold in order to test you're strong enough for that you would you would get something out of that right and so it reminds me of the dionysus versus the crucified uh dichotomy once again because we have one form of skepticism that he first describes which you could call a platonic or christian form of skepticism and then this form, the frederickianism of uh, Frederick the Great, uh, that is a Dionysian form of skepticism, and so we'll continue quote there may be good reasons why warm-blooded and superficial humanitarians cross themselves just when they behold the spirit uh, and he 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 uses French here say espere fataliste ironique mephistophelique which translates to that fatalistic, ironical, mephistophelic spirit. Uh, Michelet calls it, and not without a shudder, end quote. So notice, warm-blooded and superficial humanitarians, warm, they cross themselves like the Catholics do, make the sign of the cross, when they behold this spirit, which is uh, fatalistic, ironical, mephistophelic spirit. And Kaufman notes, certainly referring to Goethe's, version of mephistopheles uh not christopher marlowe's or the earlier versions of the myth where in Goethe's faust mephistopheles is sort of this the representative for the devilish side of the human intellect in many ways and you know uh, definitely go revisit the episodes on faust if you want to consider the full implications of what Nietzsche could be saying here by referring to a truly dionysian skeptical spirit in this manner. And certainly I would think Nietzsche would include himself as this type of skeptic. So let's continue, quote, but if we want to really feel what a distinction such fear of the man and the German spirit confers, a spirit through which Europe was after all awakened from her dogmatic slumber, we have to remember the former conception which was replaced by this one. It was not so long ago that a masculinized woman could dare with the unbridled presumption to commend the Germans to the sympathy of Europe as being gentle, good hearted Good hearted, excuse me, weak willed, and poetic dolts. At long last, we ought to understand deeply enough Napoleon's surprise when he came to see Goethe that shows what people had associated with the German spirit for centuries. Voilà un homme, that meant, but this is a man, and I had merely expected a German. End quote. So, uh, again, some things that are sort of, you know, relevant to the century that Nietzsche is writing in and the European perception of who Germans were before the time of Goethe and but you know perhaps the most interesting line in that last section that the German spirit the skeptical German spirit the critical historical German spirit uh awake, awakened Europe from her dogmatic slumber what does that mean that was Kant's famous turn of phrase that uh, Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumber um Hume's what skepticism the great skeptic david hume of scotland he awakened kant so there's a there's a line from skepticism in philosophy to the kantian project which com, you know kant becomes basically the poster boy for enlightenment philosophy that completely transforms and sets a new epoch of what philosophy means and this comes from germany um, okay let's go to 210 quote Suppose, then, that some trait in the image of the philosophers of the future poses the riddle, whether they would not perhaps have to be skeptics in the sense suggested last. This would still designate only one feature, and not them as a whole. With just as much right, one could call them critics, and certainly they will be men of experiments. With the name in which I dared to baptize them, I have already stressed expressly their attempts and delight in attempts, was this done because as critics in body and soul they like to employ experiments in a new, perhaps wider, perhaps more dangerous sense? Does their passion for knowledge force them to go further with audacious and painful experiments than the soft hearted and effeminate taste of a democratic century could approve? End quote. So he's calling just very quickly, Nietzsche's calling back to earlier in the text, in part two, where he says the name he baptized the free spirits or the philosophers of the future is by the name tempters and attempters, um or experimenters and you know this poses the riddle every all of his considerations whether they would be skeptics in that last sense but that's Nietzsche's quick to point out that might be one of their virtues but he's very careful not to make any sort of universal statements about what the philosopher of the future will be like outside of just the fact that they are in the image of himself insofar as they have re-evaluated the relationship between body and soul between good and evil between truth and fiction. Okay. Uh, let's continue quote, no doubt these coming philosophers will at least be able to dispense with those serious and by no means unproblematic qualities, which distinguish the critic from the skeptic. I mean the certainty of value standards, the deliberate employment of a unity of method, a shrewd courage, the ability to stand alone and give an account of themselves. Indeed, they admit to a pleasure in saying no, in in taking things apart, and to a certain level-headed cruelty that knows how to handle a knife surely and subtly, even when the heart bleeds. They will be harder, and perhaps not always only against themselves, than humane people might wish. They will not dally with truth to be pleased or elevated or inspired by her. On the contrary, they will have little faith that truth of all things should be accompanied by such amusements for our feelings." They will smile these severe spirits if somebody should say in front of them this thought elevates me how could it fail to be true or this work delights me how could it fail to be beautiful or this artist makes me greater how could he fail to be great perhaps they do not merely have a smile but feel a genuine nausea over everything which is enthusiastic idealistic feminine hermaphroditic in this vein and whoever knew how to follow them into the most secret chambers of their hearts would scarcely find any intention there to reconcile Christian feelings, with classical taste, and possibly even with modern parliamentarism, though such conciliatory attempts are said to occur even among philosophers in our very unsure and consequently very conciliatory century. Critical discipline and every habit that is conducive to cleanliness and severity in matters of the spirit will be demanded by these philosophers not only of themselves. They could display them as their kind of jewels. Nevertheless, they still do not want to be called critics on that account. They consider it no small disgrace for philosophy when people decree as is popular nowadays philosophy itself is criticism and critical science and nothing whatever besides this evaluation of philosophy may elicit applause from all the positivists of france and germany and it might even have pleased the heart and taste of kant one should remember the titles of his major works our new philosophers will say nevertheless critics are instruments of the philosopher and for that very reason being instruments a long ways from being philosophers themselves even the great chinese of konigsberg was merely a great critic end quote and so again that critical historical spirit of the germans that great chinese of konigsberg that's kant um it's also been translated as like the chinaman of konigsberg um i i believe i've answered uh, or talked about why that is in the past but you know that kant uh you know he recapitulates so um, powerfully to the common morality that to the common metaphysical and moral uh, demands that Nietzsche thinks come from like the collective or herd morality, and so uh, I think that is why Nietzsche is calling him Chinese in that way, because uh, the Eastern approach to you know life and culture and morality is very collectivist. I think that there's maybe a little more to it than that, but I think that's perhaps um, it's best to err on the side of the most simple explanation there. Um, More important, I think, is earlier in the passage where he's pointing out something that's not terribly philosophically complicated, but something that I think all of us who aspire to be free spirits of the philosophers of the future will probably struggle with. And that is, um, you know, reconciling christian feelings with classical taste for example classical taste here referring to uh you know having a taste for the morality and the worldview and the beauty of for example the ancient greeks something that nietzsche has within him something that it's a cultural thread that persists throughout europe because it gave rise to the culture of europe so it's still there but those christian feelings have been so predominant for so long and that There's a desire to naturally reconcile these two because they're at war. They're incompatible with one another, the Christian and the Greek morality. It's essentially the master and slave morality, right? Dionysian and Christian world orientation or world feeling, we might say. And in some sense, Nietzsche's point throughout this book that I think is a very subtle point that is often lost is that tension is good. Conflict is good. War is good. Even when it comes to the fact that, like, oh, you feel the master and slave morality within you, you feel the Christian and the classical within you, good. You don't need to reconcile those. There is no reconciliation. They will be at war within you forever because you are the child of two warring houses. You can be, you know, whether you're destroyed by that or whether you harness that tension to shoot for a farther goal, um, that sort of depends on what kind of person you are and whether you have the fortitude or the, the ambition or the willpower to, to make that, that conflict within you something that you can harness. Right? So, uh, also another callback to human all to human or another idea that's also talked about or discussed in human all to human, the idea that, uh, pleasure, that a belief gives you, or the fact that it makes you comforted, that this thought elevates me, how could it fail to be true? Nietzsche argues, not only do we all know that that's not a valid way to know whether something is true, that's not a way of knowing that it pleases you, and yet that is a standard that we all employ. Uh, and the free spirit, the truly free spirit, what the, the ideal that Nietzsche is aiming for here is the kind of person who no longer employs the pleasure principle as proof that something is true or justified. The fact that a belief gives you pleasure does not make it true. And the fact that a belief gives you displeasure doesn't make it false. And, uh, you know, so he says, perhaps these free spirits, these philosophers of the future don't merely have a smile, like a little sort of knowing, like, okay, a little gentle smile at the childishness of such a belief. Perhaps they even have a genuine nausea over all of this, uh, that, that, that sort of way of thinking, or, or construing pleasure as a way of knowing. And that's a large part of Nietzsche's project as well. Okay, 2.11. Quote, I insist that people should finally stop confounding philosophical laborers and scientific men generally with philosophers. Precisely at this point we should be strict about giving each his due, and not far too much to those, and far too little to these. It may be necessary for the education of a genuine philosopher that he himself... Has also stood on all these steps in which his servants the scientific laborers of philosophy remain standing have to remain standing perhaps he himself must have been critic and skeptic and dogmatist and historian and also poet and collector and traveler and solver of riddles and moralist and seer and free spirit and almost everything in order to pass through the whole range of human values and value feelings and to be able to see with many different eyes and consciences from a height and into every distance, from the depths into every height, from a nook into every expanse. But all these are merely preconditions of his task. This task itself demands something different. It demands that he create values. End quote. So, at the beginning, stop confounding philosophers with philosophical laborers and scientific men generally. He acknowledges how these are important figures. Again, they're instrumental But the philosopher, the great philosopher or the true philosopher, the new species of philosopher that no longer uh, the, the irony, I guess, is that, you know, you could conceive of Nietzsche's problem being that we have separated the philosopher from the scientist, that science ceased to be natural philosophy and took on a life of its own. But Nietzsche doesn't I mean that distinction has already been made and Nietzsche doesn't want to go back to conflating to an earlier time to a, a less discerning less well-developed uh, type of science. Um if anything he just thinks that we've gotten the relationship wrong yet again and that the the philosopher can now be recognized as being having always been something more or other than merely someone who searches for the truth in that objective or dogmatic sense. And he gets to it at the end. The philosopher creates values. Now, as to what he means by creating values here has been the source of much controversy, especially because of people like Peterson, who would tell you that well, creating values is impossible, and this is where Nietzsche goes wrong. And so a passage like this would be rather... um, you know, problematic, or this would be where someone like Peterson would see Nietzsche, um, you know, really making a mistake in his analysis and seeing that, like the the philosopher can't be as the value as the legislator and commander of values, um, ultimately is not up to the task because individual human beings can't create values; we have to discover them. I don't think that Nietzsche thinks that we can create values ex nihilo like the way a a God would, or else he might use that type of metaphor to describe the free spirit, right? Notice how he describes them, the philosopher of the future. He lists, uh, he says, critic, skeptic, dogmatist, historian, poet, collector, traveler, solver of riddles, moralist, seer, free spirit. So some of these things are things he's criticized, right? And we have to, again, recall to mind, human all to human, the idea of uh, adopting a conviction, thoroughly understanding it, seeing the world through that lens. And then as the person who is most familiar with it, coming to understand the ways in which that conviction or that perspective is limited, at which point one passes from that perspective to a new, perhaps more complete perspective, or perhaps just a different one. And then by adopting all these different perspectives throughout the course of what living experience, having been all of these different things, having had a time and a place in your life where you were dogmatic. And then you're able to look back on that and say, wow, I was thinking very dogmatically at that time. Um, that reveals something to you about the nature of thought, the tyrannical nature of thought, the nature of human beings and and our convictions and how they can dominate our, our point of view. But also having been a critic or a skeptic or a poet, right? And I'm reminded again of the the, the Gaea Scienza, the the science of the troubadours is, is really what he's describing here and it also goes back to his assessment that the philosopher is not afraid of becoming a jack of all trades the way the scientific man is the person who pushes themselves into a nook because they would rather have definite objective technical knowledge of a specialty which um you know assures them of their worth to the collective and to their institution and the power the utility that they can create Versus the philosopher who's doing something unwise, unprudent, trying to see the totality from a height, trying to encapsulate the totality from their own perspective within their own set of concepts. And that's the way in which they're going to create values out of the material of all of those different life experiences, convictions, beliefs, and collapsed convictions, collapsed beliefs, things that they've questioned to death. Um, you know, just different perspectives that they've been at different points in their life, that's what actually will allow them to create those values. So it's not ex nihilo. It's, it's creation out of something, out of raw material that you, out of the material of life, we might say. And then uh, what Nietzsche follows this up with is uh, the uh, accusation that I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode that Kant and Hegel themselves are the ones who, if not perhaps totally being philosophical laborers, like Socrates, those are their epigoni their, their children are philosophical laborers. That is the epoch that they created was the epoch of the philosophical laborer of the scholarly drone. So we'll continue where Nietzsche says, quote, those philosophical laborers after the noble model of Kant and Hegel have to determine and press into formulas, whether in the realm of logic, or political, moral thought, or art, some great data evaluations. That is, former positings of values, creations of value which have become dominant and are for a time called truths. It is for these investigators to make everything that has happened and has been esteemed so far easy to look over, easy to think over, intelligible and manageable, to abbreviate everything long, even time, and to overcome the entire past. An enormous and wonderful task in whose service every subtle pride, every tough will can certainly find satisfaction. Genuine philosophers, however, are commanders and legislators. They say, Thus it shall be. They first determine the whither and for what of man, and in so doing have at their disposal the preliminary labor of all philosophical laborers who have all overcome the past. With a creative hand, they reach for the future and all that is and has been becomes a means for them, an instrument, a hammer. Their knowing is creating. They're creating a legislation. Their will to truth is will to power. Are there such philosophers today? Have there been such philosophers yet? Must there not be such philosophers? End quote. So, uh, (laughs) I think what's most interesting here is The difference between the scholar and the philosopher once again is that the scholar looks over former positings of value and categorizes them and the reason then why somebody like hegel is you know that's why the philosophical laborers of today take after his noble model is because hegel attempts to fit the entire history of philosophy into this structure where he categorizes all of it right Uh, as these different stages of the revelation of the absolute mind. Um, you know, and uh, Kant, you know, as Nietzsche mentioned earlier, is like the ultimate critic in philosophy uh, or a critic of knowledge. He says, I, I I, kind of glossed over this earlier, but he says, think about the names of Kant's books. You know, it's like critique of pure reason, critique of practical reason. That Kant is a critic, right? And uh, that this is, you know, perhaps... Perhaps Kant expressed that uh, genuinely heroic German style of hard skepticism, but that the people in his aftermath, the Kantians, are the ones who have sort of watered down his skepticism into the sort of, you know, the skepticism that covers or envelops everything in the academy today. Or not today, but, you know, in Nietzsche's time. Modernity as Nietzsche perceives it, right? I think what's most valuable is his picture of the philosopher as you know he's reevaluating what the philosopher is in this section by contrast with the scholar in some some ways it is sort of dialectical right I think Nietzsche is coming into awareness of what the philosopher is when he stops just seeing the philosopher as a figure of pure reason or objective reason that re- this new understanding of reason as always being motivated will to truth is always being motivated, uh, will to truth as being a growth or an outward manifestation of the will to power. And so this aspect of values creation again is the central thing. And they determine the wither and for what of man, this is really the primary philosophical activity to determine what is a human life for? Um, what is the, when we, even beyond an individual human life, like what is this whole story of humanity? What is humanity uh, doing? What is the meaning of mankind? What is our, uh, and, you know, some might think that, you know, uh, we shouldn't come up with something like that. Like a T, it sounds like a telos for mankind. And I could see a lot of Nietzscheans having a problem with that. But Nietzsche's problem with a telos for mankind isn't that it's a telos. His problem with it is that it's come from these um, sick valuations and claims of being derived from an other world or from pure reason, the lap of being, and so on and so forth. But all mankind, he says, is something with great potential, that he, his whole work is, is focused on what is mankind bringing forth, what are we transforming into right? This is a world of becoming and not being. So what matters is the future. What matters is what we're progressing towards, not so much preserving what we are now. And so mankind is an instrument. And all of the past, all of the history of mankind has merely been an instrument, a means for us, for summoning forth the future. And so with a full understanding that that's what our reasoning really is, could there be a philosopher that applies their reasoning within the full awareness of what reasoning really is? right is really the question that he raises at the end okay 212 quote more and more it seems to me that the philosopher being of necessity a man of tomorrow and the day after tomorrow has always found himself and had to find himself in contradiction to his today his enemy was ever the ideal of today so far all these extraordinary furtherers of man whom one calls philosophers though they themselves have rarely felt like friends of wisdom but rather like disagreeable fools and dangerous question marks have found their task their hard unwanted inescapable task but eventually also the greatness of their task in being the bad conscience of their time by applying the knife vivisectionally to the chest of the very virtues of their time they betrayed what was their own secret to know of a new greatness of man of a new untrodden way to his enhancement every time they exposed how much hypocrisy comfortableness letting oneself go and letting oneself drop how many lies lay hidden under the best honored type of their contemporary morality how much virtue was outlived every time they said we must get there that way where you today are least at home facing a world of modern ideas that would banish everybody into a corner and specialty a philosopher if today there could be philosophers would be compelled to find the greatness of man the concept of greatness precisely in his range and multiplicity, and his wholeness and manifoldness, He would even determine value and rank in accordance with how much and how many things one could bear and take upon himself, how far one could extend his responsibility, End quote. So given everything we've covered, I think a lot of this comes through very straightforwardly, and it has some of the more famous Nietzschean turns of phrase for describing the philosopher, the true philosopher, that they are the bad conscience of their time, They apply the knife vivisectionally, live surgery, right? Opening up to see the way things work while the thing is still alive, which can be fatal, right? Um, But he says that this is not just, it's not just bad conscience of their time. You know, they're not just raging against their own time out of, you know, resentment or taking revenge on it. What they're doing is trying to, um, in a way, know of a new greatness of man, as he puts it. Such that Nietzsche's entire attempt to understand morality from a naturalistic standpoint is, in a way, you know, it it, it deprives us of this old dogmatic morality of moralism, but makes possible, perhaps, a new understanding of morality that might, you know, uh, give way to the realized full potential of man in a way that we've never seen before. And, uh, once again, you know, Nietzsche is letting us know how this is sort of his own confession uh, towards the end of that chunk I read, because it says facing a world of modern ideas that would put everyone into their own corner or specialty, slot you in to, you know, a place in the assembly line of this utility producing modern society, which is what the scholar is part of. The philosopher would find his wholeness in manifoldness, and and the, the strength or the value could be measured in the degree to which somebody could take on so many different contrasting things, so this contrasting cultural inheritance and moral inheritance of modern cosmopolitan society, and not be destroyed by it. How much he could take all this into himself, and how far he could extend his responsibility over all of it to absorb it all into his identity. All right, let's continue. Quote, Today the taste of the time and the virtue of the time weakens and thins down the will. Nothing is as timely as weakness of the will. In the philosopher's ideal, therefore, precisely strength of the will, hardness, and capacity for long-range decisions must belong to the concept of greatness. With as much justification as the opposite doctrine and the ideal of a dumb, renunciatory, humble, selfless humanity was suitable for an opposite age, One that suffered like the 16th century from its accumulated energy of will and from the most savage floods and tidal waves of selfishness in the age of socrates among men of fatigued instincts among the conservatives of ancient athens who let themselves go toward happiness as they said toward pleasure as they acted and who all the while still mouthed the ancient pompous words to which their lives no longer gave them any right irony may have been required for greatness of the soul that Socratic sarcastic assurance of the old physician and plebeian who cut ruthlessly into his own flesh as he did into the flesh and heart of the noble, with a look that said clearly enough, Don't dissemble in front of me. Here we are equal. End quote. And I, I want to say briefly the way he described earlier in this passage, uh, you know, that applying the knife vivisectionally to the culture and to expose how much hypocrisy and comfortableness there is in the society around them. Even before he mentions Socrates, it's very obvious who he's talking about, and thus who he's sort of comparing himself to, and casting the philosophers of the future in the mold of. And so, once again, Socrates is one of the most lambasted figures in Nietzsche's work, but there are so many ways in which Socrates is the model for the the philosophical approach to life in many ways, and that uh, it is you know it's one of the reasons why Kaufman argues that it is the children or disciples of Socrates that Nietzsche really despises and not Socrates himself. Now I don't think that's entirely true. I think he does have problems with Socrates for sure, but uh, and there are even ways in which you know Socrates saying don't dissemble in front of me. Here we are equal finding the base in even the extraordinary people in society, right? That is one of the ways that Nietzsche criticizes scholars or the scientific objective state of mind earlier in this uh, chapter. So, uh, you know, Socrates, that also could sort of describe Socrates in many ways and the way he describes him here. But, uh, I mean, uh, we just shouldn't ignore how Nietzsche is also pointing out. It's like the the conservatives of ancient Athens their words did not match their deeds really at all or their way of life. They were just mouthing things that they didn't really believe or even understand anymore um, because they were convenient ways to justify themselves or dismiss criticism. And in many ways, perhaps the greatest irony is that the scientific mindset that Socrates unleashed on the world has become exactly that same type of orthodoxy. Right Socrates' epigoni now run everything, and they are the people walking around who are just letting themselves go toward happiness or towards pleasure, you know uh, happy with their lukewarm yes and no, they don't really have um a burning need to establish an you know valuation of life or a what for when it comes to humankind or their own lives. They're just simply here to live as pleasurably and comfortably as possible before they pass on and to increase that utility for everyone in society. And they just mouth words when it comes to, whenever anyone questions some of the deep values questions, there they become skeptics, right? They're um, they're skeptics until it comes time to examine their own valuations, at which point uh, it's like their own valuations become invisible. They can't even see them. Well, the, well, that's just the truth, right? That's not my opinion. Okay, so we'll continue. Quote, Today, Conversely, when only the herd animal receives and dispenses honors in Europe, when equality of rights could all too easily be changed into equality and violating rights, I mean into a common war and all that is rare, strange, privileged, the higher man, the higher soul, the higher duty, the higher responsibility, and the abundance of creative power and masterfulness, today the concept of greatness entails being noble, wanting to be by oneself, being able to be different, standing alone, and having to live independently. And the philosopher will betray something of his own ideal when he posits, he shall be greatest who can be loneliest, the most concealed, the most deviant, the human being beyond good and evil, the master of his virtues. He that is overrich in will, precisely this shall be called greatness, being capable of being as manifold, as whole, as ample, as full. And to ask it once more today, is greatness possible? End quote. Uh, And I think all of that is fairly clear uh, and doesn't really require any exegesis, uh, given all that we've covered so far. And so then, with that, we're going to look at the very last uh, section in We Scholars. 2.13, quote, What a philosopher is that is hard to learn because it cannot be taught. One must know it from experience, or one should have the pride not to know it. But nowadays, all the world talks of things of which it cannot have any experience, and this is most true and in the worst way concerning philosophers and philosophical states. Exceedingly few know them, may know them, and all popular opinions about them are false. That genuinely philosophical combination, for example, of a bold and exuberant spirituality that runs presto and a dialectical severity and necessity that takes no false step is unknown to most thinkers and scholars from their own experience, and therefore would seem incredible to them if someone should speak of it in their presence. They picture every necessity as a kind of need, as a painstaking having to follow, and being compelled, and thinking itself they consider something slow and hesitant, almost as toil, and often enough as worthy of the sweat of the noble, but not in the least as something light, divine, closely related to dancing and high spirits. Thinking, and taking a matter seriously, considering it grave, for them all this belongs together. That is the only way they have experienced it. End quote. And he puts experience in quotes there because his entire critique is premised on the fact that the scholar has no worldly experience. He specializes in learning and categorizing facts about things of which he has no lived experience, to use that modern coin- coinage. And I think I should just clarify because I've sort of I've talked a lot in this episode about taking values creation seriously or taking the first principles that one has to come to, that the problem that these do come from an irrational and conscious place seriously. And the fact that the scientist or scientistic, I don't know the word because the word people often use nowadays is scientism. But if you just, you you can't say a scientist because that means somebody in the profession of the sciences, not somebody with an ideology of scientism. But that's what I'm talking about here, somebody who is a positivist, right? They don't take these questions of values seriously. I don't mean that they don't take them gravely. That's not like the problem that Nietzsche has with them. But it's sort of like the playful seriousness or gay seriousness of, what would you say, understanding the significance of that question and treating it as something that is a matter of life and death it's merely that for nietzsche even life and death should be something that we take somewhat gaily because that is what it means to say yes to life in some sense is to um uh, let you know the brevity of life sweeten it for you and you know to let the the war and struggles of conflict of life be something invigorating you know something Agonistic, in the sense the Greeks experienced it, not agony in the sense that we see strife and struggle today. And so, I think that's just worth clarifying. And we again, he sort of there are some areas where he's almost repeating himself, if not verbatim. But uh, you can tell that you know Nietzsche is thinking along the same lines as when he's talking about the tempo of thought in part two of this work in Machiavelli, and the way he describes this exuberant spirituality that runs a presto right um, and coupled with severity and necessity it's like you know talking about uh, about uh, Machiavelli taking us through you know these these harsh severe truths at a brisk allerissimo and you could breathe you can f- feel and smell the dry air of Turin you know as he as he walks us through his uh, ideas. That this is unknown to the philosophical laborer or scholar. For them, thoughts are something slow and ponderous, and uh, you know, they're, the world of thought is not a dance for them. It, it, they're, they're not the kind of people who have experienced the poetic perspective on life, or the the gay, the troubadours' perspective on life, or something of that nature. And that's why the next thing he says is quote, "Artists seem to have more sensitive noses in these matters." knowing only too well that precisely when they no longer do anything voluntarily, but do everything of necessity, the feeling of freedom, subtlety, full power of creative placing, disposing, and forming reaches its peak in short, that necessity and freedom of the will then become one in them and quote. And this is something I've talked about quite a bit as well. It's freedom to not freedom from, if you conceive of freedom as freedom from, you are always going to feel like you're being compelled by mechanistic causes. If you think of freedom as freedom too, if you learn to identify yourself with your own desires and drives, with who you are in the instinctual level, the physiological embodied level as a living being, um, and one of the ways that you can feel that is through artistic expression, where something moves through you that, yes, you use conscious technique, but the, the ignition of that process is coming from somewhere unconscious and really unthinking in a way although we could say every drive thinks it has its own logic of its own thinking but it's not like the way we consciously come into self-awareness of our own drives right with this mediating ego consciousness idea um, you can feel that sort of come out of you in the way the greeks thought of a god or a muse taking charge over the artist but this isn't a sense of losing control of like being enslaved it's where necessity and freedom of the will unify. And so it's another great example of you could feel necessity to be something that you have to resign yourself to, or you could feel necessity to be something that is the fulfillment of who you are. And yet again, we have, like with skepticism, like with freedom of the will, um, so many things in Nietzsche, even morality or immorality can be an expression of either something Dionysian a creative, destructive, potent, life-affirming force, or it could be resignationism, Platonism, Christianity. All right, let's finish out this passage and finish out this chapter quote. Ultimately, there is an order of rank among states of the soul, and the order of rank of problems accords with this. The highest problems repulse everyone mercilessly who dares approach them without being predestined for their solution by the height and power of his spirituality. What does it avail when nimble smarties or clumsy solid mechanics and empiricists push near them? As is common today, trying with their plebeian ambition to enter the court of courts. Upon such carpets, coarse feet may never step. The primeval law of things takes care of that. The doors remain closed to such obtrusiveness even if they crush and crush their heads against them. For every high world, one must be born. Or to speak more clearly, one must be cultivated for it. A right to philosophy taking that word in its great sense one has only by virtue of one's origins one's ancestors one's blood decide here too many generations must have labored to prepare the origin of the philosopher every one of his virtues must have been acquired nurtured inherited and digested singly and not only the bold light delicate gait and course of his thoughts but above all the readiness for great responsibilities the loftiness of glances that dominate and look down feeling separated from the crowd and its duties and virtues, the affable protection and defense of whatever is misunderstood and slandered, whether it be God or devil, the pleasure and exercise of the great, of the great justice, the art of command, the width of the will, the slow eye that rarely admires, rarely looks up, rarely loves, end quote. And that is the end here. And it ends with this order of rank, uh, explanation here at the end that the order of rank plays in here too in philosophy and Nietzsche talks about ancestry and blood and all of these things which you know springs from like maybe perhaps his Lamarckian leanings what I think is most useful in looking at that passage is Nietzsche's fatalism and necessity which is important that he just gave us an example of necessity experienced by someone who doesn't experience it as like this deterministic enslavement of being put in chains by mechanistic causes, but who, giving us an example that necessity could be experienced as like a destiny, like a cherished destiny that we have. And I think we can view his comments at the end here as basically an expression of this, that there are... It's, it's like, I guess what I'm saying is like, we don't need to think that like philosophers literally have a philosophical gene, you know, they have it literally in their bloodstream, but more so that, you know, rather than seeing it as a series of accidents, that so many events were uh, contrived together and sort of conspired the universe conspired all of these highly improbable things that had to happen to create you the person listening to this now who is now interested in philosophy and philosophical thought. And how rare is that in the history of humankind of actually being in a position where you have the resources, the nourishment, the shelter, the, all of these things that have been provided for you by fate so that you can pick up a book and not just a book of practical knowledge, not just a story to distract yourself, but a book of someone uh, really attempting to encapsulate the world in abstract concepts and to be introduced to this idea and to be brought into this world of philosophy, as Nietzsche says, in the great sense of philosophy. And then how many among all of those who have that great privilege actually get the chance and the realize the destiny of becoming a great philosopher? You know, a handful, one or two a generation, right? Right. And that this is rather than something that we might see as accidental, it's something that we should see as fate or destiny insofar as look back on all of those you know, what we would call quote unquote random in the mechanistic worldview or the, the new atheist worldview, these random accidental occurrences of um that just happened, you know, in the in, in a completely meaningless universe reinterpret all that as all of those events having to happen for the meaning of bringing you forward, or to take it away from ourselves, bringing this great philosopher forward, right? That the fact that there was somebody like a Nietzsche, all of these circumstances had to play out in order to make Nietzsche exactly the kind of person that he was, and that this wasn't accidental, it was all absolutely necessary, and thus Nietzsche was fated to that, and that Indeed, yes, every great philosopher required generations of sort of energy to be saved up. You might put it in the poetic way that Nietzsche is putting it in order for the confluence of factors to finally ignite and someone like Nietzsche to come along and throw a stick of dynamite into the entire philosophical academic establishment, right? And so once again, the ending of this section Ends with a reminder that this is not a call to action or a new dogmatic universalist philosophy that in fact Nietzsche is only speaking to the people who are predestined by necessity to be able to, you know, make any meaning or sense out of what he's saying. That's who he's writing to and that the people who are in that class of philosophical laborers or scholarly drones or whatever disparaging term we want to call them uh, will not understand what Nietzsche is saying. Um, and it's just as simple as that old adage that when a man's whole uh, career or raison d'etre depends on him not understanding something, um, then it will be next to impossible to make him understand it. Um, so with that, we'll end end here. I think this is actually very, even though ostensibly it's about scholars, it's an indispensable section for Fully fleshing out what Nietzsche thinks of the philosopher, because we got the critical angle at the beginning of the book. And now with this completely new understanding of philosophy and truth seeking, we have a more positive, almost admirable view of the philosopher here. But always the target is the scholar or academic. And Nietzsche, I guess this is a point I didn't raise, even though it's um, maybe obvious from the beginning, Nietzsche is a scholar. He says the philologists are the worst ones. Right? And he counts himself among those. He says this, is, this whole section is him showing his wounds. And so when Nietzsche criticizes scholars like this, saying that they have you know, just these specialized nooks and crannies of knowledge without any real-world experience, that they're not passing through these actual perspectives and places in their lives in order to attain new heights of knowledge or a real grasp of an actual embodied living truth, right? he's speaking from experience. Saying, I was one of these scholars. I know this is my. I'm speaking from my experience. That's how I know this about the scholars, and it's precisely because they haven't had the experiences that I've had, and the exact life and fate and destiny that I've had that they still remain in the academy, uh, droning away at whatever specialty they have, and not knowing anything of their own experience. Right, only knowing things that are esoteric, um, categorical types of knowledge. And uh, I think it is a, it's a powerful section because Nietzsche is speaking as a former scholar himself. We scholars, right? Uh, this is an indictment of his own tribe or of the tribe he comes from. I think Nietzsche liked to think in his later years that he transcended being a scholar. Okay, uh, we're done with uh, part six. Next time, we'll get on to uh, part seven, our virtues. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.